This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on this side. Good morning. It's another day. It is another day. It's Thursday, by the way. You've made it, uh, you know, you're almost done with the week, if you look at it. Relax. You've almost made it. Hey, great show coming up for you today. We have got, uh, we're going to be talking with a media expert, a professor here um, in the communications department at Brigham Young University about the media and its influence. Has the media been a major part of the Donald Trump phenomenon? You know, nobody's had more airtime. Nobody's had more free publicity. And is that uh, part of the, you know, is that the media's responsibility? Are, are they supposed to be the watch guard for this? What exactly is their role? And why are so many people against them? We'll be talking with Dr. Scott Church about that um, and get, uh, I think, uh, some pretty interesting insight into that. If you uh, if you are following politics, you probably couldn't avoid last night the Sanders-Clinton head-to-head debate. Um, it got a little feisty. It's almost like I, I, I think I think after uh, Hillary lost or Secretary Clinton lost the the uh, big Michigan primary it's she's getting serious now uh they're taking each other on in a way that that maybe you know you you haven't seen before they're also getting into uh some fairly serious questions they uh, hillary clinton was asked about benghazi notice the response from the crowd i and everybody in the administration all the people she named the president the vice president susan rice We were scrambling to get information that was changing literally by the hour. And when we had information, we made it public. But then sometimes we had to go back and say we have new information that contradicts it. The minute the moderator said, I have a question about Benghazi, the entire crowd starts booing. Everybody's booing. Boo! And then throughout the entire, all the questioning around Benghazi, she was booed. And the question was basically... Uh, one of the mothers of one of the men that were killed, he, she says that Hillary Clinton lied to her because Hillary told her daughter Chelsea one story and told uh, the family another story. And so it was a very direct question about that, and it's really interesting. Again, this was Jorge Ramos, and um, he, he, you could hardly hear the questioning over the booze of all of the of the the people. Did you hear that last night? I did. Wasn't that crazy? I well, mean, have I you mean, ever seen just a question? It's just a question. It's yeah. Just a question. Same th- I mean, things it, have happened at the Republican debates where right. they ask certain questions in the crowd. Yeah. Because the crowd is full of, as Trump's been pointing out, boosters and, you know, big supporters. Followers, yeah. Right. So, I mean, these aren't people that are there to decide. They, they're there to support their candidate. Yeah. So you ask them a question that they don't like, they're going to boo you. Oh, big time. Big time. It was an interesting debate. I mean, they weren't. It's getting. It's getting more intense. You can tell. Hillary's changed her game. She's. They're not just nice anymore. At one point, she started when she would speak. She was not even 
mentioning Bernie Sanders. Yeah. She was just focusing on, like, she started talking about Trump, but now she has to, oh, wait, I have to go back and focus on the primaries because yeah. he's not going Remember away. Remember Bernie. Remember Bernie. Even when they, they, they kind of baited her out to talk about Trump, you could tell she didn't really quite want to go there yet. But no. she did, but she didn't. I mean, normally you'd beat the crud out of Trump because this is your group, right? You could right. These are your people. Take yeah. a jab. And anyway, it's interesting. I, um, I don't know. It's, it's going to be an interesting race to see what happens up in the Rust Belt. Is Bernie going to be able to continue to do what he did in Michigan and get kind of all of these disenfranchised white factory workers, steel workers? The idea is that possibly, yes, the yeah. narrative's the same. He, he appealed to voters in Michigan with that sort of a message. Why wouldn't that continue on through you know, similar economic standing with the, the, the different areas he's moving into? This uh, debate was put on by uh, Univision, right? And so she – all of a sudden I didn't remember that. And then in the middle of one of her questions about Donald Trump, she basically she said, basta. I told him he needs to basta, which means like stop in Spanish. And um, all of a sudden I'm like, what? Does that work? Why is she speaking Spanish? If you don't speak Spanish, if you just toss in a word or two, do people go, wow, she's with us? She's fluent in seven words. Isn't that wild? Uh, Clinton on her emails, though, that's another thing that might be dogging her throughout the election. It wasn't the best choice. I made a mistake. It was not prohibitive. It was not uh, in any way disallowed. And as I've said and as now has come out, my predecessors did the same thing. I did not send or receive any emails marked classified at the time. What you're talking about is retroactive classification. I hate that. You ever had retroactive classification? No, but I think it's some people are dismissing this whole concept. But if you Mm -hmm. do something in, say, like 2000. Yeah. And it's fine. But in 2008, they go back and look at it, and they go, well, eh, that was retro. our rules now have Let's changed, so as we're releasing this stuff, we'll need to fix it. So does she need to be well, punished for right. doing that? Except for however many, 12, I can't remember, emails that were, that were at the highest level of security, that at no matter what age, whatever group, right. whatever person looking at it would have known you don't share that, because that was about an operation – with people in the field, locations, names. We'll see. Oh, by the way, that was an interesting part of the debate as well. Do you remember? uh, So she then gets asked, so if you get indicted on all of this, what will you do? I think that what we've got here is a case of overclassification. I am not concerned about it. I am not worried about it. And no Democrat or American should be either. There was no permission to be asked. It had been done by my predecessors. It was permitted. I didn't have to ask anyone. If you get indicted, would you drop out? Oh, for goodness. And it's not going to happen. I'm not even answering that question. Just dismisses it out. (laughs) Oh, the tangled web. See, but again, and this is going to get into our our next guest, uh, Dr. Scott Church. What role does the media have? The media, they need to ask the questions. And many would say the only time... They're really asking the tough questions are in these debates. There's there need may, does there need to be and even more so the town halls and the where town they're halls. just one on one. But I think those are those questions are vetted beforehand. Uh, do you think they're vetted by the candidates? I do. Do you really? But see, a media sh- a journalist would never allow that. I don't believe that to be the case at all. Oh wow! That's see, we'll I, have I, to ask. 
Because I, I don't think you actually get to the super tough question. Or I don't think a uh, like say I think one of the last ones I saw was on CNN, and they're sitting there across from the candidate, and I don't know if they're asking like the I guess I'd call it the the question that really punches them in the face because they don't want to offend, yeah right? they don't want to do this, and I do believe that because the candidate agrees to this stuff, there might be some give and take on what questions are asked, oh, how but they're there's asked. No way they can know the question because that is so that's against the journalist code. You don't give them – you don't let them – now, it may be an uncertain interview with a certain international leader that you can't get any other way. They might be able to vet it, but Maybe. not your pres- – oh, that's – we're going to ask Dr. Scott Yeah, ask him about that. Because that's a big deal. Um, it's also, by the way, International Bagpipe Day. Yeah, it's, it's a huge day. This is a huge day. Everyone loves a good bagpipe. Who doesn't? Actually, I think most people – would rather not participate in this day. But. This is the music we play in the studio, though, before we start the show. And then, you know, remember how Ben puts the kilt on and then starts spinning? Terry recites the Braveheart speech. Yes. Uh huh. And then. I scream freedom right as the yeah. mics turn on. It's great. I liked it we a remem- lot. We remember the fallen. <laughs> yeah. James, former producer. Yeah, oh, yeah. This is a good day. It just changes the mood, doesn't it? This is why I want these at my funeral. It's because that's that's what you associate this with as a funeral. Mm-hmm. This or Braveheart. That's it. Yeah. There's not enough like wars and and like where you just line up and really have the bagpiper pump you up. Odd old man knees because they're always in kilts. You know, it's like yeah, wear long pants, please. Uh, I never thought of it as old man knees. Old man knees. Just. Ugh. Mm. A point in life, people just need to wear pants. No, totally. Just because you wear have a bagpipe doesn't mean you're free to wear a kilt. No, I just saw that on a bumper sticker. Yeah. There's a point in life where just, people just need to wear pants. Put the kilts away. Just wear pants. No more old man or, or get a tan. <laughs> uh, let's get to the headlines, Terry. Anything going on around the rest of the world we need to worry about? There are. Thanks, Matt. The four remaining Republican presidential candidates will face off tonight at the University of Miami, five days ahead of the Florida primary, the 12th GOP debate. There's been 12, Matt. I can't believe that. Hosted by CNN and some other people. Comes in at a uh, critical time for Senator Marco Rubio and Ohio's Governor uh, John Kasich as they face must-win contests in their respective home states ne- next Tuesday. That's a Super Tuesday 3, I believe, on this show. The debate airs at 8 p.m. Eastern on CNN. There were reports on Wednesday that Marco Rubio would be dropping out mm. if he does not show well in Florida. 100% categorically false. I have never discussed dropping out with anyone on my team or anyone on the planet Earth. It is not going, or anyone on any planet for that matter. Uh, <laughs> I am not dropping out of this race. Yeah. We're going to be in this race. Through, we're going we're gonna to fight this thing through Tuesday. We're going to win Florida, and we're going to go on. He hasn't talked to anyone on this Earth. See, he leaves it open. He can't leave it open like that. Yeah. Donald Trump is the one I think that may have started that rumor. Uh, no, he would probably quote somebody else. It's not yeah, him. Sure, yeah. Someone somebody else. else. Yeah. So one of Donald's friends, and then he shared it. He shared it. Former Republican presidential candidate Carly Fiorina announced her endorsement of Ted Cruz on Wednesday following major wins for Donald Trump in Michigan and Mississippi Tuesday evening. It is time to unite behind one candidate who can beat Donald Trump, who can beat Hillary Clinton, who can beat the D.C. cartel, which is interesting. I didn't know there was a cartel. I thought thought they were elected officials. Yeah, I didn't know there's a cartel. uh, Former CEO of Hewlett-Packard. 
Uh, Free Reina had prided herself during her own presidential run as being a non-establishment candidate before eventually dropping out in early February. I saw my own name on the ballot. It was kind of a thrill, Free Reina said, voting in the Virginia primary. But then again, I uh, checked the box for Ted Cruz. And then she gave him a hug. It was kind of awkward. No, but really, hold on. Yeah. Would you really not vote? So if you're in your own voter voting booth and your name is on the ticket for president. I'd vote for me. Totally. You're never going to have that opportunity yeah. again. Vote oh, for yourself. Yeah. I and mean, you can vote for Ted another time. Yeah. Interesting. But she's backing Ted. Yeah. They're all going to start lining up for Theodore. Well, she wasn't going to vote for Trump after the comments right. about, you know, what the way she looks or any of those things. That's oh, that ridiculous. Would, well, that would have been bad. Yeah. That would have been like Christie. Right. Right. It would have been back there held hostage. Uh, Senate Republicans pushback hasn't stopped President Obama from moving forward with the Supreme Court nomination process. NPR reports Obama's reportedly already well into the process of interviewing candidates to fill the vacancy left by the late Justice Antonin Scalia. And out of these candidates interviewed, he reportedly has narrowed it down to the top three picks. Mm. I would give you bios and info on them, but you have no idea who they are. Okay, good. Thank you for sparing us. They are qualified for the job. They're wonderful people. Once we get one candidate, we'll worry about who they are. Okay. Before then, they're just judges. They're just people. Around the country. Just humans. And finally, as if air travel wasn't fun enough already, imagine getting into the middle seat with four or five strangers on either side of you. Ew. Why? Doesn't that sound appealing? No. No, not at all. It's something to look forward to. United Airlines has confirmed plans to retrofit 19 of its 74 Boeing 777s wide bodies into high density sky buses that will utilize 10 abreast seating in economy seating. This, according to the USA Today. Nine of those planes will be flying domestic routes, uh, primarily to and from Hawaii, and the other 10 will be used for long international flights. Wow. So there'll just be rows, 10 seats in a row, and if you're that last person, you'll have to climb over everyone to get to your seat. Or to go to the bathroom. Or anything. Boy. Sounds like fun, right? You want to buy that ticket. You want to pick the... Yeah. Worst seat on the plane. The problem is they're going to find out this will work, and then every plane will be like this. Yes. But as they're calling it, high-density sky buses. That sounds just appealing. Well, I think dense is the word. Yeah. <laughs> right? So you got if you're going to take that flight, dense is going to be a prerequisite. Not density, but dense. Because why on earth would you fly five hours to Hawaii? <laughs> To quote a movie, my density has brought me to you. Uh, I think that's a different quote. Oh. Yeah. No? No. Back to the future. I know. I said said to quote a movie. Asking a girl on a date. My density has brought me to you. Uh, I thought it was destiny. No, he said density. (laughs) Okay. Did he really say density? That's exactly the problem right there. Uh, We're going to take a break, folks. When we come back, Dr. Scott Church will be joining us. Assistant Professor of Communications here at Brigham Young University, a media expert. We're going to pick his brain on what is going on with the media in the election. Are they doing their job or are they just propping up Sir Donald Trump? We'll find out. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, this year's election has been crazy, filled with a lot of controversy, 
We have some uh, some candidates taking some very um, extreme positions, I guess you could say it, with Donald Trump, Bernie Sanders. The media has been capitalizing on the public interest in the campaign trail. In fact, Donald keeps bringing up the fact about how the media, they're making so much money on on him and his, uh, you know, how he's bringing the ratings up. But just how much influence does the media have on an election? And is the attention of the media beneficial to a candidate's success? Joining us in studio today is Dr. Scott Church, Assistant Professor of Communication at Brigham Young University. He uh, He's here to walk us uh, through just – we want to pick his brain, quite honestly, and find out what is going on uh, in this abnormal year. And especially because the media are taking such a big hit, too, from the people. Dr. Scott Church, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks for having me, Matt. I appreciate it. Great to have you. What do you think? Okay, so as a, as, as a media scholar studying the media – what what do you what grade would you give the media for this election so far? You know, it's certainly not a passing grade. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty low. Uh, yeah, and uh, you know, I, I remember watching the first Republican debate back in October, and it was three and a half hours long, which uh-huh. is, which is just kind of unusual that for debates. That is crazy. Uh, of course, they had to do that to accommodate all twelve or thirteen, you know, the candidates, but but. What would kind of inform how I graded the media is is the questions that they were asking the candidates. They were essentially playing into Donald Trump's narrative, mm. which was rather than let's talk about policy, let's talk about your plans. They were uh, Ted Cruz, Donald Trump called you this insult. How do you respond? Yeah. And that was kind of the tenor of it. And even though some of the candidates fought back, that's how it returned. And right. so, so, yeah, I'm not exactly pleased how the media has been handling it. It's – you know, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that because I – you have seen a difference in the GOP debates versus the Democratic debates. And everyone was saying – because that's – they've got two candidates. and But it might be because Donald Trump is not in that debate that the that Democrats are being asked more policy kind of wonkish questions and the GOP are being asked about, you know – their color of their skin uh, based on tanning, fake tanning, right. and just the crazy stuff like that. So that is the media, right? That's the media asking these questions. Well, it's it's a you know it, it is kind of a symbiotic relationship because it's hard to say you know did Donald Trump create the media coverage or did the media coverage create him? right? And part of it, I think you could you could relate it to the medium in which it's taking place. I mean. Not only is this happening on television, which uh, there's a media scholar, Neil Postman, would argue yeah. everything on television is going to be entertaining. It's 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 not a place that privileges you know reasonable discourse. But <clears throat> you've also got this parallel narrative that's happening on Twitter, and a lot of <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of Donald Trump's you know points that he's making are happening on Twitter as he's right. attacking the insult tweets. You know, so so it's it's an interesting relationship how it's working out. Can can it be um, – I mean the, it seems like we've lost a little bit of the the independence, the objective media where they don't get as brought in – brought into the fray. They're not – today they, they do. They, they become part of the story uh, and I think even unintentionally but like Donald keeps bringing up how much money the media – they're making on him. So it now becomes almost a ratings issue. And he's on anytime he wants to be. He's on. He's on a show. Is are the media supposed to be generating revenue, or are they supposed to become the you know the the fourth arm of the government? I think definitely the second option. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're the fourth branch. They're mm-hmm. the critical watchdog that that holds the uh, you know the candidates accountable. 
And and it seems like the opposite is happening, that it is turning more into a ratings fest, that that rather than, than pointing out, you know, Donald Trump is disingenuous and he's not really talking about any coherent policy and he's changing his tune every single day. If they do try to to play that off, uh, if they do to try to play that up, he just shrugs it off mm. in the in the debates, or he he frequently calls people liars, including the media and other candidates. And it, it feels almost this air of inevitability right now that he's almost untouchable for some strange reason. And that's what I'm worried about: is that other candidates seem to be kind of, in many cases, rolling over, like Jeb Bush is a right. famous casualty of what's happening. And so. So it's very – it seems to be unprecedented to me how this is all taking place right now. And it also seems like – remember he – there was one debate he didn't even want to go to. He wasn't going to go to it and I actually don't remember why. But he always negotiates money. It was because Megyn Kelly was one of the <laughs> moderators. It? And yet he still went back for a th- another one with Megyn Kelly and then after is saying she's a wonderful woman, very insightful. Mm. Right. But, so I, I guess um, it, it seems like they could – the media themselves could fix some of the Donald phenomenon by just not playing him, not being a part of his – not falling prey to his trap of teasing and and not having him on. Right. But that's also a part of the trap of, of what's happening is these sorts of events get a lot of coverage. They get a lot of clicks. They get a lot of likes. and And, and so in some ways – but even if even on uh, if they choose to report on how ridiculous and ludicrous he's being, mm-hmm. he's still getting that coverage. Yeah, he likes the that coverage is great coverage, right? And part of the the interesting thing about his his campaign is he kind of brags, you know, I'm not even accepting donations to fund this campaign, and whether or not that's true, you know, he doesn't almost he almost doesn't need a lot of money to get his name no. and face out there because it's already happening that's on right. its own. But if they just didn't put him on – so like the time when there was 12 candidates, it seems like you didn't have to give Trump as much attention. You could have easily just put everyone else on. Now, it wouldn't have been great for ratings probably, but it would have been great for an objective media. I agree. The, one of the interesting things about it and maybe – which is why this tone is developed in this way is he came into the race as a – non-political celebrity. Yeah. And so he already had some sort of platform, some sort of, you know, the framing was trying to figure out how to how to how to depict him, you know, in the debates and 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 in his campaign. And so he came in as as this with the status that was unlike even, you know, Jeb Bush, you could say, you could argue was a political kind of star right. because of his pedigree, but but Donald Trump came from an was an entirely different breed of politician, and so that changed the parameters of the campaign even before he started talking. Do you see a similar um, favoritism on the Democratic side? I mean, Hillary again kind of has the persona, the imagery, and the history that Donald. I mean, she has a ton of name recognition. She is the candidate, but yet it seems like the media gives Bernie a ton of press. Right. It's almost like – and you don't know if the, if the media are anti-Hillary or just really pro-Bernie. Right. Well, it seems like Bernie was kind of a protest candidate to come in yeah. because I, I was just reading last week his first uh, – the New York Times coverage when he first entered the race. And the the article clearly said up front, Bernie has absolutely no chance of winning, but this is interesting that he's entering the race. And that's how it all started. And hmm. I think he took a lot of people surprise, by surprise by how much popularity he's gained. And so part of that is the it's 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 an interesting story for the the viewers because 
she's not necessarily steamrolling through just like everyone predicted right. she had for the last you know 20 years since she was in the White House last time. Do you think the media then they, – they, they could become the kingmaker because they'll start following polls. They get to basically set up the dialogue for – like even right now they're doing it with Rubio where Rubio doesn't have a chance. So they all start kind of projecting that Rubio doesn't have a chance. If he doesn't win Florida, Rubio's got to get out. And if, even if it's not the, the media saying that, they're bringing the people on the shows that say that. And Bernie didn't have a chance. Bernie was done. Bernie was done. Right. Hillary was going to ride the, the horse into the finals. And then all of a sudden, Bernie upsets everything and it changes the entire discussion again. Because So what is the role of the media in setting the agenda every week? And because is that is it that they're just truly objectifyingly or objective and reporting what's happening or are they setting the agenda? I think I think hopefully you would hope that, that that's their desires to be objective in their approach. But but absolutely there's agenda setting happening here. You see it, don't you? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, and then all of a sudden, I mean, two weeks ago, Cruz was in trouble and then Cruz wins and then Rubio's now in trouble. And it's got to be frustrating. Is this why everyone hates the media? <laughs> it's like all of a sudden it's the easiest punching bag in the world. Right. Well, it doesn't help that the Republican candidates are constantly attacking the media right. any chance they get. Um, you know, I think that it's it's a bit of a love hate relationship with with the public. They they might claim to they might claim to hate the media, but at the same time, they're completely addicted to it because we are a mediated society and, yeah. and we depend on it, especially in our you know in our age of social media. Mm-hmm. And then then and with the power of social media, one clip can carry a lot farther than it used to but also so can like Bernie Sanders can raise 12 million dollars or whatever or 5 or 7 million dollars in a night by just saying hey send in money we're going to go another couple months on this right well bernie's kind of an unusual candidate too he's he's definitely not like trump but but as far as being a an ideological candidate you seem to see more of those on the republican side you yeah. know we had rand paul and his father, you know, the libertarian side. Here we have Bernie on the far left uh, as, as a self-proclaimed democratic socialist. And I think that's part of one reason why he's getting so much coverage too. He's a bit of an oddity on that yeah. side. Just that he's got such mainstream appeal with those extreme views. And they're anti – yeah, they're anti-government. They're anti-kind of establishment, which – and I don't know if Bernie – Bernie's not anti-media, but, it, but Trump certainly is. Right. And, you know, that's interesting to compare both of them, too. I, I hadn't thought of it until just right now that Bernie in some ways is – you could argue he is in some ways the democratic equivalent of, of Donald because he's an oddity. Yeah. But he's approaching it with his platform, with his, with his policies, yeah. with his ideas rather than insulting Hillary. His rhetoric, right. right. And whereas Donald is the other way around. He's not really touching on any policy. If he does, it changes by the next day and rather he's, he's kind of gaining, gaining his coverage through his insults and through his unorthodox way of presenting his ideas. And it again seems like – like you said earlier that the media, they're not – they're not dig, digging deeper on Donald. They're not even forcing his hand to have to bring policy. Right. And even when you have the, you know, the the elder statesman of the Republican Party, Mitt Romney, coming out very publicly holding his feet to the fire, telling him to release his taxes, telling him to release the tapes of the New York Times, that just doesn't seem to make a dent in, no. in Donald Trump. Even the next they, – they, last week's debate, and we'll, it remains to be seen what happens tonight in this debate, but – 
in last week's debate, they brought that point up and he he just kind of shrugged it off and he labeled Mitt Romney as a loser who couldn't make it. And then for some reason, the conversation shifted elsewhere. Yeah. Next. Next question. <laughs> right. Next question. I mean, I think it would be fascinating to to have the entire debate just sit for two breaks waiting for Donald to give a policy. Right. Like, like just make him say something. It's not going to happen. And, and it's going to turn into the size of his hands or something. That's right. Exactly. Some euphemism like that instead. It won't, it won't go there. It won't work, will it? Oh, man. We're speaking with Dr. Scott Church here from Brigham Young University. He's an ass- assistant professor of communications at uh, Brigham Young. And uh, he's taught courses in pop culture, business communication, public discourse, media studies. We'll be right back. We'll continue the discussion. I want to find out more what he's teaching his students about Donald and about journalism. Are we losing the uh, the old school objective journalist? We'll talk about there. Plus, also uh, get into polling. And, um, you know, when all of a sudden the media are also into polling and a lot of these polls aren't accurate – are they distorting the election and uh, maybe you know sending people in the wrong direction? We'll we'll figure it out. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. to the Matt Townsend Show. Man, crazy, crazy election. We are uh, in studio here with Dr. Scott Church. Uh, he is a professor, assistant professor at, of communications at Brigham Young University. The last name Church and BYU, hand in hand. Absolutely. That was the whole reason I applied here. <laughs> exactly. You're like, I could go to SMU or BYU. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> or Trinity College. Um, in the end, uh, we have a Professor um, Scott Church with us because we're trying to figure out the role the media play in an election. They do set the agenda. They do uh, moderate the debates, which are where we're getting a lot of the great clips of some of the worst debates in the history, I think, of politics where we're talking about hands and, you know, fake tans and people's faces. It's just weird. Um, and yet one thing, Scott, I wanted to ask you about are, is polling. Polling has been off for a few years now because it's hard to get good polls. I mean I know early on in the primaries they felt pretty good about how the polling was going because it was semi-accurate, um, except a lot of times it seems like – we're confusing the people because we'll do a national poll where it looks like Donald Trump is destroying people. And then in a local poll in a state, he may not be destroying. But the I'm wondering if the people are getting the actual message that he's not inevitable in certain states. And so how does polling work in the media? And because the media is paying for the poll, too. Yeah. And that's one of the frustrating thing about polls is that you can really cherry pick your your what you decide to take from it, right. and and Trump is he's been doing that consistently throughout, and his whole appeal comes off as being a winner, and and so he you know even if the public were to not pay attention to the polls, he's consistently reminding the public about his standings in the right. polls, and that's where his perceived power comes from, and so so the polls 
they're they're imperfect. They're the best that we've got. But again, you might have very contradictory results, whether it's a local or a national level. And so, in some ways, they're they're quite flawed. They're flawed. And then, before, uh, for example, before like a Super Tuesday or something, you will hear or uh, this last we call it Tuesday, Super Tuesday two. This last Tuesday, um, that that Donald Trump is dominating. He's doing so well, and then all of a sudden he wins two, and uh, Cruz wins two. Right. And Rubio and wins Rubio one. Won, won. So then right. all of a sudden you're like, well, I thought he was dominating. But there, so there's that difference of that polling that goes on. Um, but it seems like, I guess, in the end, they can make the polls whatever they want. So the media, they're supposedly objective, but they're also the ones creating the polls. And everyone's using the poll to meet their need. Bernie Sanders, for example, says he's 18 points ahead of Donald Trump in a national poll. Right. Which is virtually useless because they're they're not running against each other. Yeah, it's not the same metric. When Donald Trump runs against Bernie Sanders, it's going to be a different ball game and and same thing. So we can't necessarily trust him, but we use that as a gauge all the time and and then we even know the polls themselves are flawed because it's harder to get the right people, especially these younger blocks of people that only have cell phones. Do you do you sense that um the media they're just it seems like they're it's the dog the tail wagging the dog kind of a thing is is this only because of donald or is this because the media is sliding is donald that good or are the media really losing their hold because of social media and this need for ratings you know I think it could be a combination of both of those factors. And I should also point out that, that John Kasich is really holding his uh, – hanging his hat on the fact he, – he, he mentions it quite a bit in debates that, that he would win Hillary but that Donald Trump would not win Hillary right. Clinton. Right. And again, that's what exactly does that – what does it, exactly does that mean? Until we're running. Right, until we're running, until we're in that position. So I think that the polls are, are a great way of maintaining interest and of, of bringing the public's attention back to the, po- to the po- politics and, compa- and campaigning and, and debates. And so that's one reason why we're always reminded of them frequently. But again, and, and Donald Trump has experienced a lot of inexplicable success um, as the media has been you know, pointing out for months now. But so I think it is a bit of, it, it is a bit of both. And uh, you know, people are always re- referring back to the polls in their social media posts, and so so it's just simply that it's it's just simply something that's always going to be at the front yeah. of, of the media, in my opinion. What do you think then about um, the media versus Trump? Is Trump this strong? Is he just this good, or is the media sliding, just overall losing its grasp as it tries to compete with TMZ and other sources of news that aren't necessarily as stringent and structured as right. the New York Times. I think that's that might be an accurate assessment. It, I don't know necessarily if the media is sliding, but it is a way of, for the media to exert its influence um, as the gatekeepers of the information. Hey, we're the ones who conducted this poll. Here's the results. You heard it from here, from us first. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like you said, TMZ and these other people on, on social media they are often getting you know a lot of a lot of publicity by by what they're saying by what they're tweeting about it and so so this is one way that the media i think could try to differentiate itself from the more amateur you know yeah. citizen journalists out there does um it, it just is such an I- ironic moment uh somewhere in the situation in the election um i think president clinton or somebody said something about 
feminism and uh, Hillary Clinton is the greatest thing for women since sliced bread or I don't remember what it was. And Donald Trump jumps in. Do you remember this whole fiasco and brings up Bill Clinton's past? Right. Bill Clinton shouldn't be talking about feminism. Feminism or right. and and his wife maybe shouldn't because of she was she came down really hard on a lot of the people that brought allegations against her husband. Anyway, and Donald so Donald ends up saying something that no one else on earth would say. And the media historically would not report to the depth that they would and did, it seems like. Um, so what do you project would happen in an election with Donald and Hillary and the media who needs ratings? Right. I think it's a perfect storm for just a completely – just an amplify – all the ugliness amplified. I think it, it would only get worse personally oh. if it came down to the two of them. And I don't know if it necessarily Hillary would – you know, would come down to his level as far as insults. I don't think she would. I think it would be easy for her to try to distance herself from him by saying, hey, look, I'm not this type of candidate. I'm not going to going to do that. But, you know, that's the same thing that a lot of the Republicans did. Jeb Bush, uh, Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, they all swore early on, we're not going to fall to this level. And then they just inevitably did. Yeah. And so if this does happen, I think that over time that could potentially happen, partly because his supporters, his large army of supporters expect it to happen that way and and would kind of create the conditions for it to have to happen that way. Yeah. You know, for example, just last night in the in the Democratic debates, there was a, a, a question about the emails to Hillary Clinton and she tried to ignore the question but she was pressed and then she said, I'm not even going to answer that. Um, but, you know, in, in politics, the way that, the way that debates are today, you can't – you can't just kind of shrug one of these questions off. They'll, they'll always come back. Yeah. And, and, and it's interesting because, I mean, that is – it's an interesting dilemma because there's not really any information yet. She hasn't been indicted. But there is an investigation with 100 FBI agents. Right. And they did just give immunity to somebody that was directly related to running her email system and set up her email system. So, you know – it's interesting. And right, yet it is. there's so very little information about it or questions being asked about it. In fact, there's like one journalist uh, that I know actively reports on it, which is um, Kathleen Herridge, I think, from Fox News, who is who see, who's accredited a strong reporter but seems like a renegade kind of Benghazi chasing person simply because she's from Fox News and it, it's – it's so polarized, isn't it? Just like the country, I guess. Right. And and I think, you know, consistently Hillary's been trying to make that go away. Um, but especially if, if she – if it ultimately comes down to, to her and Donald Trump, that's going to be basically the entirety of the substance of these yeah. debates. Frankly, because Donald Trump isn't going to, to really try to talk about policy. He's going to re, re, constantly revert back to that. Well, and that's what he does is he puts a label on you, which she can't be trusted. Right. She can't be trusted. And he will drill it and drill it and drill it until she explodes. Yeah, and it, and it seems to work. He said, "You're low energy, Jeb. You're yep. low energy." And then Jeb had to gone. leave. And then now he's saying, "Little Marco, little Marco, which is just gone." Right, it seems to work. <laughs> Ted can't be trusted. Having right. troubles. Lying, I mean, lying Ted. Isn't it crazy? One by one, taking yeah. them all on. Even Chris Christie uh, got into the game too, and and 
it ended up now Chris Chris is with him. Tell me what you tell your students now. Uh, I'm sure these discussions have to come up in class. What they, does they a media do. communications professor tell his students about journalism now? First of all, I – well – it's a double-edged sword because it's sad to talk about this in, in classes that deals with journalism because it's certainly not the ideal of what you want journalism to be and what journalism has traditionally been. But at the same time, it's it's gold because it yeah. just creates a great discussion. Yeah. And and everyone seems not only to be you know familiar with what's going on, but they're invested in it and the students are excited to talk about it. And you know, I mentioned earlier Neil Postman and uh, talking about Television yeah. and Amusing Ourselves to Death is the name of his famous book. And, and we brought it up and predictably that discussion went on for an hour and a half just about Donald Trump. Oh, and, man. and we can make – so what's happening right now for me as a professor who likes to have a lot of discussion in class, this is actually quite exciting to analyze it. Yeah. But, but at the national level, it's quite sad because – It's pathetic. <laughs> it's pathetic. Exactly. But I, mean, I studied Postman what? 25 years ago right. and Marshall McLuhan and um, – Noam Chomsky. I mean, mm. they all kind of got in. But talk about um, it's it's sad. It's a sad. It's kind of a sad commentary. Is it? Um, do do we? Because we did. We had this in other eras of the United States, right? The muck the muckrackers, right? Muckrakers, muckrakers. Yeah. I mean, there's been bad journalism before. Right. And we came out of it. And there's been bad candidates before. That's right. I, I think people forget. I've been saying a few times this is unprecedented. It, it's not exactly – it's unprecedented in modern times. Right. Uh, I was just reading last night that back in the time of you know John Adams with these muckrakers, they'd be accused of being murderers. I mean just these really <laughs> intense allegations. And then famously Andrew Andrew Jackson, when he was running for president, shot and killed someone. Yeah, that's a who, bad day. <laughs> it's a bad day for <laughs> politics. And so I guess Andrew I, Johnson did that. Uh, Andrew Jackson. Jackson did Jackson that. Jackson did. And 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 somehow he still made it to the White House. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess that that might be some yeah. sort of comfort that I hopefully we won't ever get back to that level. Well, but Donald Trump said I could shoot somebody and no one would care. He did. He said, <laughs> he said that. <laughs> He said that and that was that was very it, – it kind of gave his whole campaign this air of some sort of narcissistic experiment yeah. rather than I really want to do what's best for the country. What, what brought us out of the muckrakers era? Well um, – Because maybe we need that. <laughs> well, traditionally it was new technology. It was it was uh, the penny press that That's you had right. this this new distribution for newspapers and and it really the circulation kept improving and more people kept reading and so journalists started to change their tune from being very subjective and very opinionated and very political to just kind of being objective you know journalists just, the just covering the facts hmm. um, but ironically as new technology started you know, kept taking place, it started to kind of revert back to that. You know, yeah. with, the, with cable television, you have much more um, much more of a forum for opinions again. So in some ways, it's like we're re- reverting back. Maybe, maybe it will change when we go as dirty and dark as this goes. Then right. we'll be like, ooh. We should hope so. We should hope that – I would hope so that, that people could kind of take a step back and, and try to restart the process. Man. You got to hope, don't you? Right. It's time to go to church, isn't it, Doctor Scott Church? <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> well, we appreciate you, man. Uh, again, Doctor Scott Church, Assistant Professor of Communications at Brigham Young University. Thanks for being here. Thanks again. It was my pleasure. Great insight. We'll take a break, friends. Come back and continue the uh, first hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Yeah, interesting, interesting topic. The muckrakers. I did not know Andrew Jackson shot and killed a man. That's a that's a bad that's a bad election. You know what? I guess we're better off than we used to be. I mean, back then you could shoot and kill a man and become president, you know, right away. You know, Donald just mentioned it. It's different. He'd never do it. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't. Ben's like, I don't know. He wouldn't. Come on. Hey, uh, again, happy International Bagpipe Day. Happy Mario Day in recognition of everyone's favorite pizza-loving Nintendo character, Mario. He first appeared in Donkey Kong in 1981. Mario soon became not only the mascot for the computer giant Nintendo, but also a worldwide sensation. I love me some Mario, brothers. Joining us now, live, from Nintendo headquarters, Mario. He always walks in, like, with all this great fanfare. I want, every time I take a step, that I have these noises. I think you have to have it programmed into you, Matt. Oh, do you? Yeah. That's weird. Today, by the way, also the day of awesomeness. It's a day for celebrating all things awesome and everything awesome that you, your friends, and everybody else does. Take a moment to consider everything that you're awesome at and to recognize feats of awesomeness performed around you for the day of awesomeness. So I would like to recognize my awesome team of producers, my incredible producer, Terrell, Terrell, Terrell South. Take your pick how you want to say it. It's a moving target. Just figure <laughs> moving it out. Target. We call him Terry or T-Dog. Mm. And we also, oh, in the middle of a yawn, we want to recognize the awesomeness of Benjamin J. Wasden. He's awesome, but apparently bored. He's bored and awesome, which is why he is our board operator. I think it's a, <laughs> that sounded sarcastic. No, it was a pun. I was laughing at the pun. There was a pun there? Yeah. He's bored, and that's why he's a good board operator. Mm -hmm. You are the most bored operator I've ever worked with. I'm honored. Totally. Uh, This is the show where we give you the solutions, the information you need. Again, a lot of shows would not bring you this level of comedy this early in the morning. But we do because we care. We're going to take a break. You can find us uh, on iTunes, on TuneIn. Send it to your friends. Look us up. Down, you know, right now, go to your podcast app. Download the Matt Townsend Show. That way you're never going to miss an episode. Stick with us. We'll come back next hour. More tools, more ideas to help you find the good in the world. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here. 
your life coach, your guide on the side, doing what we can on the show to get you the tools, the information you need to live longer, uh, healthier lives. Last hour, we learned the power of uh, the duel in solving political problems. But it won't work now because the NRA is so involved. I learned something from Dr. Scott Church last hour that Andrew Jackson became president, but not until he shot somebody in an argument. Like 20 years before. Well, yeah. Amazing. And then the whole Aaron Burr, Hamilton thing, that was a big deal. That was that was wonderful. Anyway. They even thought enough that uh, apparently in the, the proper etiquette for a duel is you have a second. And that person stands next to you and they say fire or something. Why, they direct it somehow. Why would you want to be anyone's second? I don't know. You're in the line of fire, it seems like. That's yeah. like the first runner up in the Miss you know, International World Universe pageant. Right. And apparently you get one shot. So if you miss and they miss, your argument's done. Then you got to hug it out. I, I guess. See, what I would do, I would give them a hugging shirt, which we had a guest once bring up. You get a really big shirt. Oh, right. And you put the... And you put the two kids in the shirt together, and you make them wear the shirt together until they can be friends again. Yeah, that so seems healthy. We ought to get a hugging shirt, a really big shirt, and put Donald... And Rubio in it together. Have them fight it out in, and tonight, in the shirt. And in tonight's debate, they have to wear the hugging shirt and tell their buddies. And then when they're buddies, they can go together, beat up Ted Cruz while Kasich watches on. Interesting. Because he's not going to get involved. No. But a duel would really settle a lot of no, problems. No, you can't have a duel. Why not? This duel sponsored by the NRA. Not the NRA. You could have a sponsor by anyone. Bringing quick solutions to political problems. <laughs> we could even sponsor it. Yeah, by the Matt Townsend Show. This duel. <laughs> sponsored by Dr. Townsend. When you can't... Tase it. Not a duel, a tase-off. Well, if you do a tase-off, you just keep tasing till somebody falls down. Or till something falls off. Could be. You tase them till their arm drops off. Yeah, could, <laughs> that could happen. Okay, you over-tased. You can't, you can't have a duel. That's violent. All right. And that involves guns. So we suggest, as marketers of Taze It, hmm. now, like Trump, we don't own the Taze It company. We just have licensed our name to Taze It. Right. There's some liability issues. Right. We don't want to be involved with. We've also licensed our name to Taser University. Hmm. So proper schooling uh-huh. on the use of said taser. Uh-huh. Taser now, water. Are these the Taze tasers? I, I've asked this before. I'm not sure what the answer was. Are we? Is it the the taser that you shoot and it, it launches no, prongs, no. or is it the one you stick in the ribs? Yeah, I think the one that launches prongs. That's that's for sissies. Okay. You want a taser where you're up close. I so, saw a demonstration video. Those you can miss. You'll yeah, shoot the prongs. Right? They'll fire that's over right. the shoulder or instead. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, you don't want any misfires. No. And you need both. Prongs so the, to hit, I think. The problem is with the duel, you'd have to be within Close. arm's uh-huh. reach. That's right. So the other, there has to be strict rule. You That's cannot right. strike the other person. It's all just the taser. And you know, you know what's fun? This is one that Ben made up. This was a game that Ben made up. It's called um, Pin the Taser on the Donkey. Ooh. And what you do is so you put a donkey up, a picture of a donkey, of course. Of course. 
No well, animals. I, I was talking about a real donkey. No, no but animals we, we, can be harmed. We, we can try it with yours. Well, I know, but this this is where it went bad, Ben. Because remember, so you you blindfold the person, you give them a taser, right, and then you spin them around thirty times. Mm. While all the other kids are gathered around watching, and that's what Ben did, and you know, four or five kids got, got tased accidentally. Right. As well, as the kid was looking for the donkey. Is that really accidentally? Well, it's it's a little bit more satisfying when you tase a person than when you tase no, a picture ben, of a donkey. Ben, I'm just saying you like, can't sell it that way. You have to you sell it for self defense and for fun for teenagers. Yeah, more of a target practice type exercise. Not to harm anyone. Nobody has died. Now, in, if enough waivers are signed, maybe we can involve. Yeah, two can, individuals in a dual type situation. But you blindfold them. Yeah. You put them in a room. See, that would be interesting. You put them in a room, you spin them around so they're all dizzy, and then have mm-hmm. them stumble around yeah. trying to find each other. That'd be fun. That'd be fun for the, those viewing. Yeah. And I don't know how fun it is for the people well, in the room. But, but I think it would elevate the dialogue yes. of a debate because the, then there is no dialogue. The discourse would reach a higher level. Mm-hmm. It'd be a lot more respectable. <laughs> It, it would make the argument look foolish. But why does that actually sound? Do you not think that you'd get better ratings if you're CNN? You'd get better ratings. So ratings would go up, which is what these they could have weigh-ins. Need. That's right. They could have you know the tail of the tape when they find out what the reach is because the reach is important, right? Just like That's it is true. in boxing, That's reach totally is true. huge. So you could turn the system into a boxing match. This is where having bigger hands would actually matter. They could have a standoff. <laughs> right. You could have both candidates nose to nose. Oh, this is good. I think boxing is where this needs to go. See, why Why don't they let us solve things? Let us yeah. figure this out. That's that's why we do this show. To give solutions. That and, no one has asked for. And answers. Out of the box. We call this out of the box thinking. Sure, it's a taser now. But it might be, you know, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict later. You could solve this. This is doable. I'm serious. Yeah. It's dual-able. Dual-able. They could be one and the same things. The taser could be the solution to pretty much all the world's once problems. A, it's exactly right. And once again, we do not own the taser company. We just have licensed our name and likeness to the taser company. Tasers are us. Interesting. This is a great business idea. I know. Totally. That's why we're doing it. Um, Today, we're going to be talking about super bosses uh, in celebration of uh, me. Um, My people have found a great, great guest uh, that's going to be talking about the importance of a super boss. And what is a super boss? I think they they wanted basically to honor me as a super boss. Listen to the interview. We'll we'll, we'll reconvene once once the guest explains his point of view. that seems weird. Uh, Sidney Finkelstein will be joining us. Let's try not to get ahead of ourselves. But a super boss is somebody that has the ability the to get the most out of their people, Yeah, which seems obvious that I do daily. Again, let's listen to the conversation, and then we'll make our assessment after. Okay. And it seems like a no-brainer. I don't want to cause any sort of conflict in the office today. Professor Finkelstein's published 20 books, 80 articles, and including the number one bestseller, Why Smart Executives Fail. Uh, so he may know a thing or two on this subject. Exactly. Okay. Super bosses. How exceptional leaders master the flow of talent 
much like we do on the show and much like we have done in our own offices. Uh, today, also International Bagpipe Day, a day not to be forgotten. And so don't forget it. Point made. Let's go to Terry now. Find out, Terry, what's going on around the rest of the world. Thanks, Matt. Roughly 50% of Americans currently approve of President Obama's performance as chief executive, marking his highest approval rate since 2013, according to a Gallup poll released today. The survey, which is about a 2% margin of error, shows that Obama's approval rating is up by about 5 percentage points since the beginning of the year. Compared to other presidents' final springs in office, Obama beats George W. Bush, who garnered about 32%. Granted, he was at war. I guess we still kind of are. Yeah. I'm really confused about that. Are we? Are we not? I think we are. Okay. Uh, former President Clinton uh, still tops them both, however, as he earned an approval rating of 63% in March of 2000. Man, they loved they loved Bubba Clinton. He was the man. The times were incredibly profitable. It was a great time. Country was making money. A few years later, it all kind of tanked. Kind of fell apart. With the dot-com bomb. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, it it just depends on what the situation is, really, to how the president is uh, revered at the time. Totally. Marco Rubio regrets his personal attacks on Donald Trump, and the GOP candidate revealed Thursday or Wednesday uh, a town hall interview on MSNBC. So he regrets those things that he said and kind of going... To the uh, lowest common denominator, I guess you could say, against Donald Trump. He says the Florida Center explained that his pre-Super Tuesday pivot to bashing the Republican frontrunner appearance, age, and poor spelling is not something I'm entirely proud of, he added. My kids were embarrassed by it, and if I had to do it again, I wouldn't. Rubio went on to say this about the Republican voter. I was just going to say, would you be out of the race if this were John Kasich and not? And that's the point. The the point is that no matter what I say today about supporting or not supporting the nominee, there's a significant percentage of Republicans that are not going to vote for Donald Trump. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So they're asking, were you going to drop out, vice president, all these different questions? And he goes, it all comes down to there's a large chunk of this party that will not vote for the guy that's in the lead right now. Right. It's not. Yeah. And what are we to do about that? So it's not about me. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll see how the what Florida and Ohio on Tuesday will go a long way to kind of show where the, the future of all this is going to be. The Republicans debate tonight in Miami. The debate airs at 8 p.m. Eastern on CNN. Police near Pittsburgh are searching for two gunmen suspected of killing five people and wounding three others in the back, a backyard barbecue massacre Wednesday night. Officials say four women and one man were dead after two shooters opened fire on the party around 11 p.m. and then fled on foot. Officials say partygoers told them They ran towards the house when the gunman began firing, but then encountered the second suspect as they reached the back porch. Along with the five deaths, police say two men are in critical condition. One woman is in stable condition with no suspects in custody. Hmm. Man, just having a barbecue. Stuff happens. Man. Uh, This is interesting. Lawmakers in West Virginia are excited about a new legislation that lifted a ban on raw milk. What's wrong? Why would you ban raw milk? The laws kind of have food laws have it where you need to have it pasteurized. Oh, yeah. Processed and just, you know, so it doesn't cause disease and kill you. Sure. You don't want to die because you had a milk and cookies. West Virginia does these that as overreach of regulations. And so now raw milk is available to the general public. If you want to drink it, go ahead. Wow. They're so excited that they recently celebrated by drinking some raw milk. Now many of those lawmakers are sick. Yeah. Representative Pat McGeehan's, uh, the picture on the, uh, it's funny, on the the article I was reading, goes, seen in agony in the photo above. He's on a couch and his hands on his head. He's like, oh. 
They say that he doesn't he doesn't think he or his colleague's illness is actually from the raw milk. He goes, I'm not feeling great now. He told the local news station, I think it's probably some sort of bad stomach virus. But uh, McG- uh-uh. McGinnahan admits that it's not uh, him who's or not just him who's sick. There's definitely something. Uh, some other colleagues that have similar symptoms that I've been experiencing. McGeehan says he drank a small amount of the milk and uh, he, the spon- so the sponsor – I guess the situation, the sponsor of the bill was walking around the Senate building or the, house, yeah. the legislature handing out small little glasses of this raw milk in celebration of this law passing. People drink it. It just happens those people that drank the milk, some of them are sick. They're, well, they're not saying it's the raw milk, though. They're saying that there's something else. Okay, let me get this straight. Yeah. They were not sick before drinking the milk. True. They are sick after drinking the milk. This is true. Did the sickness last for weeks or just a day? This is an ongoing situation. They're still sick. They might be okay this morning. It might be a 24-hour thing. Mm. Maybe just some food poisoning yeah. from something they ingested. Or, I don't know, a cow. Could be. I mean, do they know where the cow has been? They insist, has the cow been to a they Chipotle? They insist the timing of the drinking of the milk versus them getting is completely coincidental. Oh, sure. Pasteurized milk. This is funny. Raw milk hasn't gone through a pasteurization process that kills potentially harmful bacteria. The CDC warns unpasteurized milk is 150 times more likely to cause foodborne illness and result in 13 times more hospitalizations than illness involving pasteurized dairy products in the dictionary in parentheses right there it would say see the west virginia politicians (laughs) allegedly allegedly they're denying it well deny all you want when you go have a public tasting of unpasteurized milk and the next thing you know you're sick yeah it's problematic i found the story interesting you drink something you're sick but it wasn't what you just ingested as a as one who milked goats growing up and whose friend would squirt raw, warm goat milk in my face, I wouldn't drink anything unpasteurized. Yeah. But even juices could be pasteurized and probably ought to be if you're going to consume large numbers of, of juice drinks. So you ben. see him celebrating, and the next minute they, there are all these pictures of the members of the House and Senate sick. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's crazy. And Ben, I hope you're listening because Ben uh, just barely decided to start pasteurizing his milk for his ice cream products. Oh, no, I've been pasteurizing it this whole time. Don't worry. Okay. You also decided to strain the milk to get all of the foreign bodies out of the milk. Yeah, that was a recent decision. Yeah, that's smart. Smart. Makes good ice cream. Soon be looking for Ben's uh, ice cream. What are we calling it? Um, Ben's starting a new company. And we're going to we're going to we're going to help him. He's going to start bringing in ice cream every day, a new flavor to taste. And we're going to talk about it on the show. Isn't that right, Ben? So I can help you help me, right? Exactly. Now that you're using pasteurized milk, I'm all in. We're going to take a break, folks. When we come back, uh, Professor Sidney Finkelstein will be joining us talking about super bosses, how to be one, how to be a boss that can elevate the game of your people and, uh, and help you know the talent flow in the organization. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back.
What do Ralph Lauren, Bill Walsh, George Lucas, and Mary Kay Ash have in common? Well, besides being really big names in the business world and being known as exceptional leaders, there is one thing that distinguishes them from their peers. It is their ability to groom talent and train a new generation of leaders. They fit into a new category of people that our next guest, Dr. Finkelstein, likes to call super bosses. Uh, Dr. Sidney Finkelstein um, sat down with us. We did an interview with him about um, a super boss and, and an article that he wrote uh, about the super boss and the, the power to become an exceptional leader and master the flow of talent. We sat down with him a, a little while ago, and when I sat down with him, the first question I asked was this, what is a super boss? You know, a super boss is, uh, we all, we've all had bosses. So a super boss is a boss that actually helps us get better, helps us accomplish more than we ever could have done otherwise. It's the ideal boss, and in the process, the boss gets better, but we get much better as well, and it accelerates our career, creates opportunities for us. Well, and right now, everybody listening, they might have a super boss. It might not be their current boss, but, I mean, somewhere in their life, they've probably run into or experienced somebody that, that just stretched them to be better. Yeah, and I think that's uh, I think that's right. The more I talk to people about this idea about super bosses, the more people relate, and they always reflect back on the various bosses uh, that that everyone's had. And you know, sometimes they're good ones, sometimes they're not so good ones. And occasionally, you get this this super boss, this person that really helped your career and really uh, cared enough about you to help you get better. Mm. It's a fantastic thing. What what made you want to focus on this? I mean, as a as a business professor, I mean, you, you could focus on any topic. Why the super boss? Yeah, it's a great question. I I, uh, I actually noticed the pattern in a couple of industries that I found really fascinating. So, for example, if you look at the NFL, and I'm a big football fan, yeah. and you look at head coaches and the trees of talent that. Uh, some have talked about in the past. It turns out that Bill Walsh, the former head coach of the San Francisco 49ers, was just a giant developer of talent. You go look at many of his assistant coaches. Uh, they, they went on to become head coaches. In fact, you know, this past season that just concluded in the NFL, out of the 32 head coaches, 20 came from the tree of talent of Bill Walsh. Wow. So I noticed that. I thought, wow, it's an unbelievable thing. Who else is out there? Who is doing this? And how is that happening? And that kind of got me rolling on this whole question. No, that and that is so true. And then it's interesting too because a lot of them also became super coaches, super bosses themselves, right? They they've almost learned how to keep growing the talent. Yeah, that's the ideal thing, you know. When you have that special boss that teaches you, that helps you, and then you go off and get a bigger job yourself, are you going to pay it back to 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 others? Are you going to help them get better? And you know, if you have an organization loaded with people like this, you're going to win a lot more than you otherwise would. Yeah. Is that not the competitive advantage? It seems like everyone can, I mean, and they do in the NFL too, for example, they, they can take your coach, they can pay them more, but you can't necessarily just make somebody a super boss. No, you, uh, you can't, it doesn't just happen without, uh, without a, lot of, a lot of effort. But the truth is, I think, Matt, anyone can become a super boss in any walk of life. Even if you're, you know, a supervisor in a in a factory, if you're running an office or you're uh, uh, you're a sales manager, whatever you happen to be, I think anyone could become a super boss. You have to want to do it. You have to think about it. But it's not impossible to mm. do it. It's not it's not rocket science. Yeah, but right. It is a little bit of hard work. Talk about what is like. What are the strategies? What are the behaviors that a super boss might manifest that that that's different than just the average boss? Well, it starts with uh, where you get the talent from in the first place. 
super bosses go out of uh, out of their shell looking for talent. They're talent spotters. They're always on the lookout. And you know, there's a great story again about Bill Walsh. He went out to um, to scout a really highly touted quarterback, and the quarterback was uh, was practicing and trying out and throwing the ball to uh, a second stringer on the team who was his co- his roommate in college. And there was something about that second stringer that really got Bill Walsh's attention. He goes back. He doesn't. He doesn't draft the 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 big name quarterback. He drafts in the eighth or tenth round the uh, the guy who was throwing the ball to. And you know who that turned out to be? Who? It was Dwight Clark. Who oh, was it really? The yeah, the catch. The catch, exactly. So they're looking for talent in unusual places. They're always on the hunt for talent, and they're and they think about it that way. And then once you have those people, once you have people with that type of potential, the question really becomes: How could you help them get better? And they do it by motivating them. They do it by teaching them, and they you know they, they also do it by inspiring. It's uh, it's one of these soft words, but it really means something. You know, they get people all fired up and energized. And you know, Ralph Lauren, another one of the super bosses. You know, the fashion king. He used to tell his people, you know, everybody follows us. We set the standard. We're the ones that they all look to to see what's going on in the world of fashion. And that, and that, you got to believe that. You got to be authentic with that. But that so gets people so so energized, so inspired that they want to just run through a brick wall to make everything happen for that super boss, and they get better in the process. Yeah, and I guess if you have the talented people. Um, and and the, and they're inspired. Then something special can come from that. It seems like some bosses are they might be afraid to hire people more talented than themselves. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, uh, I think that I think that does happen. Um, insecurity is a real damaging uh, element of uh, human nature, and certainly in organizations. But if you just step back for a minute and think about it, if you hire smarter people, better people, and they're working for for you. Don't you think you're going to be able to perform more effectively? Right. You're going to hit your own targets, your own goals. Um, that's not a bad thing. They're going to make you look better. If you hire a bunch of people that are weaker, that uh, you know don't really match up to you, you might feel like you know more than they do. But how are they going to help you accomplish what you need to get accomplished? Right. Even if they move on, way. right? Even if they, even if they're only there for five years because they're so exceptional, they're picked away. You you still you still have them as a relationship. You still can have them as a peer. It's powerful. Yeah, you can. You you really and you want to work that that network. And this is not you know a, a network that you're just talking to people every now and then. You look at uh, say uh, Lorne Michaels from Saturday Night Live. Of course, so many great talents have gone out, off of that show, become you know world famous people. Uh, you just look at late night TV as one example with Jimmy Fallon and Seth Meyers. Well, guess who the executive producer mm. is of both of those shows? Turns out to be Lorne Michaels. So even though he's lost in quotes great talent. He's figured out a way to continue to work with them and benefit from those relationships. Interesting. And and then still, and maybe he's the executive producer because he's still seen by these mega talents as inspiring and able to get yeah. more out of them. Yeah. I mean, I that's, that's exactly right. That's power, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, you know, we all, we all do whatever it is we do in our careers and our jobs. But we're talking a little bit here of, of legacy, if, uh, uh, you know, if you really think about it, Matt. And legacy is a great thing. We all do what we do. But imagine you can look back at your career at any point in time and you can say, wow, I really helped other people do more than they ever thought possible. Did Jimmy Fallon think he was going to you know, be the successor to Johnny Carson right. uh, when, he, when he was you know, a 20-year-old trying out for, uh, for SNL? I, I don't think so. But wow, when, when you look at what, what Lorne Michaels was able to help happen, take a great talent and accelerate their careers. It's it's pretty exciting. Mm. It's um I guess part of it is their ability to 
to to see the talent, but then I guess it's also their ability to to raise up the talent to to push back. What have you learned about that? What what do they? How do they hire people differently? And and how do they actually maximize the talent of their people? Yeah, so they the, so they're definitely looking for what I call diamonds in the rough. Those uh, those people that. Um, Maybe not everyone else is is looking for, and they're always on the lookout uh, lookout for talent. But what they really do on a day to day basis is really uh, remarkable. They their uh, super bosses will roll up their sleeves and work with their with their staff members, their team members, their employees. Um, not every day, you know, doing that because they have their own work to do. But they get close to the word that so many people get nervous about. You know what the word is? It's micromanagement. You don't want to go over that line, right. but what is wrong with actually engaging closely with the people that work for you? And in fact, super bosses do that. You, you know what it's like? It's, uh, it, it's like that, the old way that people used to learn how to do whatever it is they were going to do in their career. It's called an apprenticeship, mm-hmm. and it's the, way, it's the way the world of work operated for centuries, and it's gone by the wayside. And I think what super bosses have, have done is they've recognized that there are, there are elements of this apprenticeship approach to helping other people get better, this close hand-to-hand working, this constant uh, teaching and motivating that, uh, that really can be beneficial. I think it's a great thing. Mm. And um, I, I, that's, there's something, too, when you have to mentor somebody when, because you – you actually might systematize your thinking too a little bit, and so so you're making you're actually reevaluating what you do do every day, to, in order yeah. to better instill it into others or share it with others. It's a it's a great point because it does it does sharpen you. You know, I've often said, and of course I'm a teacher, I'm a professor, uh, so it's kind of the thing I do. But I've often said that anyone who teaches someone else about whatever whatever the material is, whatever the idea is, they're going to get much better at it themselves by the mere fact that they are teaching. It's really a remarkable thing. And so this is also happening for, happening for super bosses. And, and then you add one other element that I, I love about what super bosses do, and I'm sure many people listening will, will know if their boss does this or will maybe wish their boss did, does, did this, but they, super bosses customize how they motivate and interact with the people on their team. Mm. It's one thing to talk about you know, leadership styles and all this type of stuff, and everyone's different. Everyone, you know, we all have our personal style of how we operate. But what super bosses are able to do is put to the side how they might prefer to operate and customize how they interact with the individuals on their team to get the most out of them and to teach them the different things that, that you know, different people on the team don't all need to learn exactly the same thing. And that type of customization is a really powerful a uh, really powerful element, I think, of what the Superboss playbook is all about. Mm, excellent stuff. Let's take a break. Again, we are speaking with Sidney um, Finkelstein, uh, who is the Stephen Roth Professor of Management and Faculty Director of the Tuck Center for Leadership at Dartmouth College. Uh, powerful lessons here um, from his book, Superbosses, How Exceptional the Flow of Talent. We'll take a break, folks. Come back and continue this discussion um, about how this can impact your business, your life, and really your legacy, as uh, Dr. Finkelstein's been teaching us. We'll be right back. More right after the break.
everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Do you feel like you have a super boss, a boss that understands you, your talent, and knows how to get the best out of you? Are you a super boss? Well, joining us is the author of the book, Super Bosses, How Exceptional Leaders Master the Flow of Talent, which was published just last month. And uh, he's he's also a professor at um, Tuck at Dartmouth. Um, his name, again, is Dr. Sidney Finkelstein. He's the Stephen Roth Professor of Management, Faculty Director at Tuck Center for Leadership at the University of Dartmouth. And um, we're honored to have you back. Again, Dr. Finkelstein, great work on this bo- on the book Super Bosses. Thank you, Matt. I, um, I, I love business books and especially, you know, kind of well-researched, well-cited books. Talk to me about... Uh, in the HBR article, the Harvard Business Review article that you did, you talked about three types of super bosses. What are those? The glorious winners, yeah. and what, explain those three. Sure. Um, and I, you know, in doing this uh, research, I didn't know I'd end up with this this kind of um, uh, analysis of these three types, but they're the ones that kept coming up time and time again. So the first. I call nurturers, and they're maybe closest to what many people might think about as as mentors. They're kind of super mentors. They do. They really do help you get better. They care about what what uh, about your development, and uh, it's kind of their their mindset. Norman Brinker, uh, who started the Brinker's chain, Chili's uh, restaurant chain, uh, he's he's the classic nurturer. So many people that work for him are today senior executives in at. T.F. Chang, at Lone Star, at all kinds of different uh, multi-unit restaurant chains. Uh, second category is more of a, uh, more about creative types, and I call them iconoclasts. Uh, these are people that um, uh, are in creative industries in some way, Lorne Michaels, uh, Miles Davis even in jazz, that, uh, uh, that help other people get better as a natural kind of organic outgrowth of the work that they're doing. So they, they attract great people, great talent that want to work with, uh, with, with you know, the Lorne Michaels of the world, and they interact and they, and they help other people get better just in a kind of a natural type of, type of way. Hmm. And then the third, uh, the third type are the, maybe the most unusual. Uh, they are tough as could be, uh, but, boy, if you can survive and, and deal with the pressure that they put on you, the, the career trajectory is gigantic. And Who's an example like, of one of the glorious type? Yeah. Uh, well, Larry Ellison, the founder and longtime CEO, now chairman of, of Oracle, oh, yeah. uh, is in that category. And, then, you know, people that work for him, and uh, he's got that <laughs> reputation of being really, really tough. And it goes to show you, you know, that you can be a super boss, and being a super boss doesn't mean that you're just kind of a, a soft touch that just cares about people. Yeah, huggy, huggy. That. Yeah, it's certainly possible. Nothing wrong with that. No one's going to say there's anything wrong with that. But there are other ways to to get to the same place. And you look at some of the some of the people that work for Lauren Michael uh, for uh, Larry Ellison over the years, and you have you know Mark Benioff, who's today the CEO of Salesforce.com, and Craig uh, Conway and uh, Ray Lane, and a, lo- a lot of superstars have come out of uh, his his management ranks. It seems like the way this is uh, you're describing the book. Um, is super boss is it's you can be any type of the three or more maybe but it's you you need to just I guess care about results and care enough about and know enough about how to get it out of the people without crushing them destroying yeah, them. You're right. 
you're you're right. I mean, there are there are different ways to get to the same place in terms of your motivation, where you start, and those are these three categories of the you know the glorious bastards and the iconoclast, etc. But you know what was really fascinating is when you look at the details of what they do, what super bosses do, no matter what their initial motivation may have been or their style may have been, they do so many of the same things. And that's and that became what I call the super boss playbook. And obviously, there's a lot there's a lot to it, but it has to do with a couple of things that we've already talked about: how you find talent, um, motivation, and you know, pushing people, raising the bar, very high expectations, inspiring people, teaching people, coaching people, all these types of things, and the specific techniques or methods, and lots of stories about how they do it. They're actually very very common, despite how different these personalities happen to be. Wow. And is it um, – I mean, I, I guess it, adaptable is probably part of the key too, right? I mean, there's some people that you probably couldn't be a glorious bastard with, but you needed to be the nurturer with. So yeah, well, do, or do these people just kind of those, – those people just wouldn't grow up underneath that type of leader? They, yeah, they, they you know, Would they just opt out? You, you – you know, getting uh, finding the right place to be at any stage of life. This is true for personal lives, but it's certainly true for work lives. And getting a a boss that you can manage and work with. I'll say two things about it. Number one, for for anyone who has a super boss uh, as their boss, um, they are going to have to keep pace with that boss. They uh, they're going to have to be working. They're going to be they're going to have to be willing to make the commitment to work really really hard. To uh, do all the things that super bosses expect you to do, it's not—it's not easy, even for the nurturers that are, you right. know, are a little bit more supportive. It's not easy to do. So you, you have to be prepared to do that. And then, secondly, I, I have to say this: not everyone has the same ambition and aspirations in life. And working for a super boss is one of the best ways you can accelerate your career, turbocharge your career, create gigantic opportunities. But you know, let's face it: there are some people that don't want to have that out of their work life. They want to put in their 40 hours and they want to contribute, but they, they, they're, they're not looking to advance in the same way. Working for a super boss won't work, and, and actually they'll discover that very quickly because the super boss won't let them stay with them. The, the super bosses only want people that have that, that aspiration, have that energy to get, to get better and do more with their, with their careers and their lives. So can I, as, can, can do, does the super boss find the, the ideal candidate, or as candidates, can we go looking for our super boss? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I spend a lot of time thinking about that, you know, because super, working for a super boss for many people, it, it just sounds fantastic, and it is yeah. for those people lucky enough to have that experience. So how do you find them? And, of course, that's the first question that, I, you know, uh, students that I talk to, uh, undergraduate students, MBA students, they're always asking that question, and I think you can. So here's a, here are a couple of tips. Um, let's say you're interviewing for a job and you're interviewing the person that's going to be your direct boss or potentially, if you get the job, is going to be your direct boss. Why not ask questions like, um, tell me a little bit about some of the people that worked for you in the past and where they are today. Hmm. And, of course, what you want to hear is that they've moved, their, they've moved on in their careers to bigger and better opportunities. Uh, tell, tell me how you spend, you know, what is a typical day for you like? Most people will ask, what, what, is a, what does a day look like for, for yourself? In the job, but ask your boss, what does a typical day look like for you? And what you want to listen for is if some, uh, you, you don't want a boss that pushes herself or himself into a world where they're going meeting after meeting after meeting, totally scripted. 
because there's no opportunity to be a super boss if you allow other people to dominate and control your schedule. Mm. We all got meetings. We know that. They're not going to go away. But does that mean that you have to be operating in this type of totally scripted way, or is there any room for almost like freelancing as a leader, where you could walk the halls, where you could spend 5 or 10 or 20 minutes or an hour with somebody, again, rolling up your sleeves and working, uh, working with them. So you could ask, and there are many other questions you could ask um, or look for in your, in, your, in your conversations with prospective bosses. But these are things, these are, those are a couple of examples of things you can look for. Well, the very, the very thought that you're interviewing your boss is, is already a sign that you're, you probably are a super talent. Right, because you're you're almost shopping which boss you want to work for instead of when you're desperate and you don't feel like a super talent. Um, a lot of times you just you'll do anything to get in. So what do you want me to be? What do you need me to be? I'll be whatever you want. But you're yeah. saying yeah, go in there, and if I guess if you're going in with talent um, and a willingness to work and and do whatever to succeed, um, yeah, then interviewing your boss that is power. It's uh, uh, it's absolutely right, but you know you. You have to communicate effectively. Yeah. You, you gotta you gotta ask these questions. I think in an appropriate way. And I think the, the examples I just gave are yeah. not you know they're not outrageous. You can you can do that as part of a conversation. But you know what we're really talking about here is a mindset for an individual that says you know I can have a little bit more control over my life. I can accomplish whatever it is I want to accomplish in my life. And I'm going to go for it. And we know there's bumps in the roads and not everything works out. We understand that. But we also know that if you don't start with that mindset or you don't adopt that mindset, then you don't really have a chance. You've got to start with something. And so I like that idea of, of, of thinking about that and, 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 and you know, interviewing your, your, your boss or your prospective boss. You might not necessarily get everything you want to hear. You might choose for a variety of reasons to settle for something. That's, everyone's in a different situation. But... You know, why not start with that mindset that right. that's what I want? Well, and two, when you get in the company, you might you might see other super bosses to go to next or, you know, to, to move and to negotiate your career. As we wrap it up. You brought up earlier, um, Sydney, about this idea of legacy. And so talk maybe just in, talk and let us understand more about what what is the what is our legacy? What? Because there's a lot of people listening that are great bosses. They may be not a super boss, but they want to pick their game up. But when you mean legacy, what is the legacy of a boss? Yeah, well, let me give you an example. Um, I mentioned Norman Brinker before, the guy that started the Chili's restaurant yeah. chain, steak and ale, Brinker's International, legendary person in his industry, truly a, uh, a classic nurturer and developer of talent. And um, you... Uh, uh, I remember when he when he died, which is just a few years ago, um, and his proteges, the f- former employees that are on, that are doing these kind of amazing things these days, uh, running their own businesses or senior executives, they took out full page ads in newspapers around the country, and and I still have a I still have the actual thing from the newspaper. I think it was the Wall Street Journal that I saw it in, and they have a nice picture of him on the top, and then in the bottom half they have a few things that they say about him. And they talk about his career, but the one line that struck me when I read it was, you know, Norman, thank you, Norman, you were more than just a, a great leader. You, when you walked into the room, you helped everybody else get better. You cared about everyone else. Mm. And, you know, that's, that's a legacy that we're, we all can strive for. We, could, we all could work for. I've seen it in a lot of other, uh, with a lot of other super bosses um, of, a, of an elder, uh, el- when, 
in their later, later in their career and people that were affected by them coming up to tell them, to talk to them, to thank them. Um, I, I, I don't know. There's a lot of ways to live a life and, and live a career. And we all want to be successful. Of course, we want personal wealth and other, other wonderful things. But legacy might be the single most important thing that we're going to remember when, uh, when, when, our, when, when we're getting towards the end of our, uh, of our run. And uh, why not go for it and go for it uh, right as early as you can and adopt some of the super boss approach. Mm, love it. Uh, and great, great advice from you. Again, thank you, Dr. Sidney Finkelstein. Appreciate your great work. And uh, thanks for spending this time with us. Oh, thanks, Matt. Really enjoyed it. You bet. Go look up the book, the book Super Bosses, How Exceptional Leaders Master the Flow of Talent. And uh, really what you're getting is – Faculty director from the Tuck Center for Leadership at uh, Dartmouth College or Dartmouth University. You're getting the best. Um, it's power, folks. Power is in your legacy. Uh, it's one thing to go fulfill a job, it's another thing to not be forgotten because of it, to have influenced many, many other lives. That's why we do the show, folks. We want focus on legacy, not just on your income when it comes to your life and your job. We'll take a break, come back, uh, wrap it up with a little tiny little coach's corner up next right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. See, Ben... Super boss. That's, you always tell me that, like when I have a question for you, yeah, you say I'm not your boss. Talk to Don. Yeah. Well, I say that because I'm super busy, and you have a lot of questions. So D- Don's more your training boss and your direct report boss. But isn't that what he was talking about in the well, interview? Well, I think he was talking more about your 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 guide on the side. Your inspiration, the the person that puts the pass in the passion. The pass in the passion? What's that supposed to mean? I don't know. I just made it up. I throw you the pass. Oh. And throw it deep and sell it cheap? Throw it deep and sell it cheap. One of my favorite memes. Yeah. So I'm super boss. But um, I digress. Let's get to another uh, really great opportunity from one of our producers. You know, it seems like every channel you flip on TV, every billboard you pass, every web page you look at is um, is covering these election campaigns. And one of the things that we've been trying to do with our producers is we, we've been trying to give them the opportunity, the experience to go out and, uh, and do news and do different kinds of news. And different opportunities. So throughout the show, we're going to be bringing on some of our producers. And um, we, we were going to talk with Leanna Tan, but I'm finding out we, we're going we're gonna to hold it off for the next hour. We got, we got to get it. We got to get it perfect, right? So darn it, Leanna. It would have been so great. Next hour, by the way, uh, we'll be talking with um, the director and uh, producer of a new Mormon Tabernacle Choir movie that's uh, going to be coming out it's called Singing with Angels. So uh, we'll be getting into that. But also, you know, on the show, we always like to do what we can to help everybody live a healthier, happier life. 
let's just say that you had a Burmese python problem in your state, right? Well, Florida does. So they uh, basically have captured over the last month 106 Burmese pythons due to a hunt that they held to control the invasive snakes population. Apparently, uh, people buy snakes like pythons, and then when they start getting too big, they go to Florida and release them. Crazy. Well, uh, the longest python caught during the hunt uh, between January 16th and February 14th was a 15-foot-long Burmese python caught by a team led by Bill Booth of Sarasota. Booth's team also took home a prize for the largest haul of snakes, 33 pythons they caught, and over 1,000 people from 29 states registered to remove pythons from South Florida's wetlands. I mean, that is crazy. Well, let's just go on some pythons in the Everglades. 13-foot, uh, 8.7-inch python that won the prize for the longest python caught by an individual. Um, this person faced layoff from his landscaping job. He completed the Wildlife Commission's online training, spent a month biking for over 40 miles a day, all to get in shape to go and eventually bag 13 pythons. Ben, would you ever go python hunting? No. Good answer. Good answer. See, that was smart. Is it because you can't bike, you know, 40 miles a day? No, I think it's just hunting a snake that could kill me. That worries you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'd get ripped if I biked 40 miles a day. You'd get more ripped. Well, yeah. That's what I meant. (laughs) I would just rip. I'd get hurt. (laughs) If I was doing that. Yeah. On What do you do when you bring in a 15-foot-long python? That's crazy. Crazy talk. Um, here's another one. If you're looking for a New Zealand job, there is a job in New Zealand, and it pays great. Uh, a rural uh, New Zealand uh, is uh, county, I guess, is offering a $400,000 annual income. So if you want to make four hundred grand. You, uh, your job is to you're, – you're going to be a medic, and you're going to share your work burden – so after two years of searching for the position, it's still unfulfilled. Nobody wants to go be a medic in New Zealand. Dr. Alan Kenny co-owns a medical practice in the modest town of Tokoroa, which has a population of about 13,600 uh, people. The GP, originally recruited from the U.K., told the New Zealand general practitioner, originally recruited from the U.K., told the New Zealand Herald his practice has exploded but he is overworked and has repeatedly had to cancel holidays because of the difficulty of finding a replacement doctor. So if you need a job and you're a doctor, for four hundred grand a year, you can go to New Zealand. And you get basically three months of annual leave um, and you know other benefits. So we're here to get you a job. It might be worth getting a general practitioner medical degree. Hit New Zealand and four hundred grand, and then in your off days, go up to Florida, hunt Burmese python, make some money. Who says the economy is not rebounding? There are places. The python market is booming. Python market is booming. New Zealand has got a great medical job. I mean, really, there's only six thousand patients on the books. How hard? How hard could that be? We're here to help, folks. 
doing what we can on the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break. Remember, you can find us on iTunes, on TuneIn. You can go download the BYU Radio app for Android or for iOS. You can download the show in a variety of places or listen to us live. You can also go to BYURadio.org and live stream it. Just look us up. It's the Matt Townsend Show, folks. We'll take a break. We'll be back next hour. Stick with us. Sit tight. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to hour number three of the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Doing what we can on this show to give you the tools, the information you need to live a healthier, happier life. Today, we're going to do it again. Hey, we got a great show coming up. We will be talking uh, about a new movie, a new release um, uh, movie that'll be. It's called Singing with Angels, and it is a story about the Mormon Tabernacle Choir and one woman's journey to making the choir. It's a big deal. It's a. It's a it's an, it's an interesting show when you think about it because all of the sudden you're sitting there. Imagine you're a, a, a musician. You sing. You're talented. You want to be a member of this choir and all of the trials and tribulations, things that come around your life that make it so it's, a, it's harder than you think it should be. And uh, we'll be talking with the director and the producer from the from the movie. So stick with us on that. We'll get to that in a few minutes. We'll also go visit our good buddies down at BYU Sports Nation. Uh, they're back in studio after their long excursion to Vegas. We're going to find out, you know, how they're doing and find out what's going to be on their show at the top of the hour. We also are going to try um, a, a really great opportunity. So I have these incredible producers. Every Friday you hear from them. Ben, by the way, is one of those producers. Uh, we we usually have other names for him, but he's the board operator. But he's he's here today. He's laughing at me. Yeah, there there are different names for when I'm not around than when I am yeah, around. Right. I yeah, think. We, yeah, yeah, yeah. We say, like wonderful. No. Amazing. We, uh, we say different things. Yeah, when you're here versus when you're not here. But uh, Leanna Tan is one of our producers, and we. It's fun because as I work with the student producers, they they have a lot of questions, and one of the questions was simply about delegates. Like we hear about all of these candidates that are out and about trying to get delegates, and it seems like every time you uh, turn on the channel or you flip on the TV or the, pass a billboard, you're going to see some coverage of the election and the campaigns. But all of these campaigns are basically going for one thing, delegates. We're in the middle of primary elections. But do you even know how to participate and how the basic system works? We talk about a primary versus a caucus. We have pledged delegates. We have super delegates in the Democratic Party. So one of our producers, Leanna Tan, we sent out there, uh, and she is going to go figure out what really is the deal behind delegates. What are delegates and how does the election process work? I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. And if they vote for me, I'm just a bill. Yeah. 
remember this song? Oh, those good old elementary social studies days. This song is where my knowledge of the U.S. politics started. But unfortunately, it's probably where it stopped, too. Yeah, I can recite to anyone that a bill's just a bill and they vote for it on Capitol Hill. But when it comes to all of these delegates and primaries and caucuses, I'm completely lost. I mean, caucus? What even is that? Sounds like some French dessert to me. Yummy. Yeah, my lack of political knowledge is a bit embarrassing, but I guess I'm not alone. According to some studies done by Pew Research, 85% of Americans have a basic awareness of Twitter, but only 53% of Americans can identify which political party their local representatives belong to. Yikes! Yeah, not necessarily a group I'd say I'm proud to be a part of. So I decided to be a true American and get up and do something about it. Here's the deal. Politics is like one big game. Every four years, presidential candidates compete in a series of state contests during the winter and spring before the general election to gain their party's nomination. Each contest has a certain number of delegates, or individuals who represent their states at a national party convention. These delegates are like gold to the candidates. Each candidate brings their best game to the contests, breaking boxes, jumping through hoops, avoiding random flying objects, a.k.a giving speeches, kissing babies, and dodging crazy reporters. Hey, you! All the while trying to say and do just the right things to avoid a political career game over. There are two kinds of contests in this game, a primary and a caucus. Both have the same purpose, it's how they're run that's different. If your state holds a primary for the initial voting stages, this simply means that you go to a traditional polling station and cast a secret ballot for those who you want to be your party's nominee. The voting for Republicans is completely separate from the voting for Democrats. Some primaries are closed and some are open. If it's a closed primary, you have to be registered with that party to vote. But if it's an open primary, then it doesn't matter who you're registered with. And then there's the caucus. And no, I guess it's not a French dessert. Really? At a caucus, people meet together and instead of casting secret ballots, they show who they're in support of by physically moving to different parts of the room that represent the different candidates within their party. Kind of like picking which dodgeball team you want to be on in high school gym class. The purpose of these contests is to see who the majority of the people want as their party's nominee. The results are shown by allocating the delegates. Some states award delegates on a proportional basis. For instance, if 30% of the people are in favor of a candidate, that candidate gets 30% of the delegates. But other states have a winner-take-all system where the candidate with the most votes takes all the delegates of that state. This is like unlocking the bonus level and finding the hidden treasure. The game gets a little tricky, though. On the Democratic side, they are competing with secret weapons, known as superdelegates. Whereas most delegates have to represent what candidate the majority wants, a superdelegate has the power to vote for whatever candidate in their party they want to without having to listen to anyone else. What? Yeah, I know. Doesn't sound very democratic to me either. In the end, the candidate who gets the most of their party's delegates wins the nomination and levels up to round two at the national convention, where all of the nominees are narrowed down to the final two. These nominees are unleashed in a final battle for the hearts and votes of America. And then, the victor receives the oh-so-glamorous title of being the next President of the United States of America. Well, there you have it. That's the United States primary elections in a nutshell. 
So you might be wondering, how can I join the game? When's my turn to play? If you want to make your own contribution to America, take five minutes and go to vote.usa.gov. Fill out the information and register to vote. And then go treat yourself to a French dessert. Because now you have a little bit more than just a basic awareness of Twitter. Go America. <laughs> well done, Leanna Tan. Go America. No, America. Go America. That's great. Leanna, just cut right through it. Delegate process, much easier than people think. Caucus, not a French dessert. Right. And and if you listen to that, according to the poll she talked about at the beginning, you now know more than just a passing knowledge of Twitter. You know more about this process. You know more. And you don't have to just, you know, believe everything that's tweeted out. Remember? I've been telling you that for years. I don't know. I find a lot of truth on Twitter. Go America. Man, we'll be doing more. We'll have Leanna cut through a lot of other issues that are, you know, troubling. Down the road. Down the road. Duels. Duels. We're going to be talking about the violent uh, process of politics that has plagued our history. We talked about it a little bit. And the possibility of of bringing back... The duel. Yeah, but we... To solve important issues. Yeah, like a taser duel. If you want to use taser, I think we can negotiate on on what the implements of of the duel is or are. Which word am I trying to use? Maybe you just need one of those little uh, styrofoam floaty things. What do you call those? A snake? A worm? The things you you put in the pool and you swim around with them? A noodle? A noodle. A pool noodle. I use, my, Have a my, son, my son and I use them as lightsabers. Yeah. See, that would not be fun to except, break them out into a noodle he, fight. He constantly goes, you're not my father. I'm like, no, I, I am. I just – and wow. in the movie – Where did he get that idea? He saw the movie. See, yeah. the problem with the noodles though is you have to have a way to get the person down to the ground. Like mm. that's the point of the duel, right? It was to get him down to the ground. Yeah. Well, at, I, at least. The duel used to be to kill him. You have to. But we're not going to kill people in the duel. Kind of relax your expectations when you're using a pool noodle. Well, how, how do you know who wins? It's more of just getting the aggression out because you can really hit a four-year-old with a pool noodle and do absolutely no damage whatsoever. How do you know that? I do it daily. <laughs> Dad, let's do this. <laughs> This part of the show not uh, so brought you to you by Matt So you take the pool Matt noodle Townsend. and you can hit and it doesn't even okay. – he, he just looks at you and goes, come on, man. Shh. Now, if they're wet Shh. at a pool, that would be a different Terry, story. Terry. What? You don't want to say this on the air. You don't want to bring this up on the air. I could demonstrate it. No, 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 no. That's it. Making YouTube videos. I'm doing that today. Oh, man. Playtime. I, I can finish finish this off with the joke if you'd like. No, 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 no. Man. Pool noodle. You know it's bad because Liz is in there covering her face. She's so embarrassed for you. <laughs> she feels so bad for your child. She's it's fine. Crying. It's a pool noodle. No children were injured in this segment. Or ever with a pool noodle. <laughs> this, is a whole, this is a bad idea. This was bad producing. <laughs> I don't know who started that, but somehow we do know Ben was involved. Yes. So if, Don, it if Don's listening, ben. it started with Ben. I didn't even want to bring that up. 
but Ben did. Um, anything going on in the news, Terry, other than noodle fighting that we need to worry about? Marco Rubio admitted on Wednesday he's not entirely proud of the personal attacks he leveled against Donald Trump, which ultimately led to the Republican frontrunner talking about the size of, uh, well, you know, well, the anatomy, blah, 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 his hands. My kids were embarrassed by it, and if I had to do it again, I wouldn't. Rubio said during a town hall hosted by MSNBC last night, Mm. Of the talk, all the talk was for naught. He said, while Rubio didn't get attention for his remark, he did get the attention for the remarks, didn't really want the attention, but got the attention. It didn't help him in the polls. He announced at the town hall that if he doesn't get the nomination, he has no interest in being anyone's running mate. You you are calling him a con artist. I can't imagine. I'm not running for vice president. I'm not looking to be anyone's vice president. I want to be the president of the United States. If Donald Trump offers you the slot, you will say no. I'm not interested in being Donald Trump's or anybody else's vice president. That's not what I'm aiming at. You didn't answer the question. Yeah, I'll say no. I don't want to be the vice president of the United States. And I'm not Donald working Trump to do asks, that. You say no. Absolutely. This is crazy. Yeah. They're beating up Rubio for comments that he made in two debates, but nobody says anything really about the Don. No. And well, for in this situation, they were talking to Rubio well, about no. situations that he's involved with. Right. I know, but again. Rubio actually has a conscience, it seems like, and he feels bad. So he says, yeah, I shouldn't have said what I said. Yes. But has that ever been said by Donald Trump? No, no. because he kind of avoids the right. one-on-ones. That's the point. This yeah. is the double standard that is now taking out another candidate. The Republicans debate tonight in Miami, 8 p.m. Eastern on CNN. Former Governor Bush from Florida is planning to meet with Florida Senator Marco Rubio, Senator Ted Cruz, and Ohio Governor John Kasich in Miami. Huh. This meeting, meetings were supposed to take place last night and today. Uh, this is from the New York Times. The glaring omission, of course, is meeting with Donald Trump. Perhaps no surprise given Bush's relationship with Trump while on the campaign trail as part of his low energy. Is that what that is? I don't know. Florida will be holding an all-important Republican primary on the 15th. Trump is leading in the polls. All the other candidates are looking for wow. George, yeah, Jeb please. Bush's Come on, endorsement. Jeb. Come on, Jeb. Since he, he's Support pretty me, much Jeb. just stayed low since he dropped out. Interesting, interesting. A woman was car- arrested this week after allegedly hiding two, a two- or a four-year-old. They couldn't tell the age of the child. Uh-huh. But they held a four-year-old, or she was carrying a four-year-old in her luggage as she tried to board a flight from Istanbul to Paris. Oh, man. The child was traveling without a ticket. The flight crew only realized she was there when the other passengers alerted them. Alerted them. The source at the airport says... The woman was a resident of France who was in the process of adopting a girl who was from Haiti. Air France employees requested the presence of the French authorities on the flight's no arrival in Paris. Way. So the girl flew from Istanbul to Paris, in, was, did, well, at least did, part of it in luggage. Was the, was the lady carrying a noodle? No. There was no pool noodle okay. involved in this story. I'm just checking. But if it did, that child would have... No problems fighting an adult with a equally as potent yeah. pool noodle. Right. Uh, while Donald Trump won't specify whether Trump steaks still exist, he wants Americans to know that he is indeed still selling steaks. In an interview with CNN Wednesday night, the Republican frontrunner managed to repeatedly dodge questions about whether the steaks he brought to a Tuesday night press conference to prove his business ventures to Mitt Romney were actually the Trump, the Trump steaks once sold through Sharper Image. Yeah. Because you want to buy your your they, massaging office chair with the you know side yeah. of steaks. Like how do how do we know that these aren't steaks that were in your freezer from your original? The steaks you showed those aren't actually Trump steaks, right? Cooper asked Trump. No, I buy them. Trump said, "I'm going to kill the cow." Trump then clarified that his question was actually about the existence of the business Trump steaks. Instead, 
Trump took the opportunity to highlight his other business ventures. Trump Steaks, we sell the steaks through my clubs. I have many clubs and hotels, Trump said, explaining that these sales were an offshoot of Trump Steaks. He added, we do tremendous steak business. Oh, my heavens. Did Rubio admit that he had a steak business that failed? No, he did not. Because that he feels bad about? No. No no regrets from Rubio Steaks. (laughs) What is happening to our presidency? This is crazy, this run. It's about steaks and branded water bottles. And vineyards. And vineyards near the Jefferson Memorial. That's what he said. (sighs) They're very proud of it. They own it. You can check the... Okay. Well, we're done lowering the standard. We will pick up our game on the show now, officially. And how better to do that than um, our next guest? We're going to, in just a few moments, be talking with uh, a couple of people from a new movie that's being released about um, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. It's called Singing with Angels. It's in theaters Friday, March 11th. And it tells the story of a woman's journey to join the choir. Joining us will be Brian Bruff, a producer and director, and Brittany Wiscombe, the writer of Singing with Angels. They're going to be here to uh, talk about the debut of this new movie. Stick with us, folks. Uh, We're going to elevate the game right here on The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir has been heard around the world. The choir has been in existence for more than a century, made up of uh, 360 men and women. The choir has performed all over the world and also at uh, inaugurations of various presidents. This weekend, the choir is taking a step into the limelight with a new release of a movie, Singing with Angels, which will be in theaters this Friday, March 11th. The this show um, tells the story of women a woman's journey to join the choir, and while it is a work of fiction, the film will feature the actual Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Today, joining us, we have Brian Bruff, who's the producer and director of the movie, and Brittany Wiscombe, the writer of Singing with Angels. They're here to help us uh, know and learn more about their film. Hey, guys, welcome to the show. Thank you. How Thank are you very much. This is fun. Great. I am honored to have you. This is a. This has got to be a pretty fun undertaking. A, you're working with a world-renowned choir, but you also are you're putting a movie out. What's what was the whole impetus behind this? What got you to do something about the choir? You know, as we were brainstorming one day, we realized that um, the choir has never been showcased in this light. You know, they've done a lot of concerts. You know, they've been featured in documentaries and even featured in some TV shows, but they've never been involved to this extent in a in a narrative feature film. You know, a story-centric uh, movie. So. We uh, set up a meeting and met with the choir president and the general manager and said, you know, what do you think about the idea of doing a movie that would, you know, show some of the behind the scenes yeah. but also be able to follow somebody's journey and the experiences they have in the choir? And that's – it's a big deal. Locally, if you live in this region, you you may know somebody in the choir. And there's so many people that have forever wanted to be in the choir but they had kids or jobs or they traveled too much or um, – so you, you may know stories personally but, Brittany, you had to go – basically make up a story that kind of, I guess, captures all of those scenarios. Yeah, I did. And, uh, you know, one thing that we we did was, you know, we wanted to show uh, what it's like to uh, to join the choir, but also to be in the choir. Mm-hmm. 
And so we actually called upon the the choir members to send us their experiences. Um, And so we incorporated a lot of true experiences and stories with our fictional character and and this uh, family that we follow throughout the movie. So in in the movie, there are there are real stories. Yes. yes, But it's a fictional kind of character that they're built around. Exactly. Wow. What is that like? Um, I mean, to go to their practices, you're behind the scenes, I'm sure. You see them. Did, did, did you go on tours with them? What did you do? Yeah, we went out on tour for um, just for one day. We went out to upstate New York because mm. they were performing there this last summer and just to get some footage there. But it was very eye-opening to see the big process that it is to take yeah. just the undertaking to have take that many people around from city to city. And, you know, when the buses pull up to let people off, it's not a couple buses. It's, you know, 10, 11 buses just to get the choir members in, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I know. And their families. And I, my father-in-law was in the choir. And um, we always joked with him because we thought the only reason he made it is because he's a medical doctor <laughs> and the choir needs a doctor to travel with him. I'm sure. And yeah. so talk to us about what were some other experiences that you had as you were putting this together? You know, it was really neat too to talk to um, – we talked to Craig Jessup, a former choir director. Uh, we talked to choir members and it's neat to see the behind the scenes, uh, both to see it when we you know came in and visited – the tabernacle and uh, and see the operations there, but also talk to them and hear about their stories. Um, one thing that's really neat is these are real people. You know, they're in performance mode when we see them um, on music and the spoken word or anytime they're singing in a concert, but they have a, a keen sense of humor, yeah. you know, and it's just really fun to see that personality come through. And that and we try to capture that in the movie, and I think it, I think it comes to life that way. And they're, they're, I mean, they're legendary. This is one of the longest running uh Shows, I think, on TV or on radio in America. I mean, it's been hundred something years of broadcasting. It's been forever yeah. broadcasting their show every week, um, and and you can see. I I, mean, I just remember seeing. There's always like certain characters, and I haven't seen uh, your movie yet, but there's always a character that's kind of funny. And we'll make some flippant comment at the right time to move the choir along. Did you did you feel like you got to know the choir? I think we got to know certain individuals in the choir. And like Brittany was saying, I think it was really fun for me to be able to see that they actually joke around a lot. Yeah. You know, the choir director, you know, from what we see on TV is he's just up there conducting the music. But, uh, you know, the feedback he gives them during rehearsal, um, Brittany took lines straight out of their newsletters of things that have actually been said over the years. Really? And just funny remarks. And, you know, the choir laughs. They have fun with it. They clap. They, they really get into it. So it was really fun to see the individual side that most people don't see. Did you, did you get to... To talk to Mac Wilberg and get to in his head about the choir, we we interacted a little bit with Mac, and when he helped with the music selection and yeah. different things like that, um, he wasn't as involved from a story standpoint, but uh, but he, he was very involved in the approvals at the end and making sure that the the movie represented oh, well great. what the choir yeah. experience is like. His plate is pretty full with oh, every, every every week. <laughs> Isn't it amazing too how um, they really are such a professional organization that he can hand out the music. They can all look at it and something that they've hardly ever, ever performed, if ever, he can stand up and immediately start producing results with it. Yeah, and that's they're why so the, fine-tuned. And that's why the, the audition process is so rigorous. What they tell us is they have a, a, a very, very intensive test that they have to take that is not, you know, even music professors and people that are professional music, musicians yeah. have trouble passing it sometimes because they have to be able to do that. They have such a tight schedule that here you go, you got to be able to just jump in and, yeah. and, and be ready this to This isn't about it. just having a great voice, is exactly. it? Exactly. You've yeah. got to know music theory. And talk about the storyline that was written, Brittany. What did you, who is the, who's the lead? What's the story about? 
Well, it's about this uh, one woman and her family. Um, her name is uh, Aubrey, you know, a fictional name, and it's played by the actress Sarah Kent. And, um, you know, we, we kind of see her and her family over a five-year span, and we see you know, the different challenges. It's great because it's a look into how a real family is. Yeah. And so we see the challenges that they face, the the highs and the lows. Um, and because of her association with the choir, kind of from that perspective, we see how music has really strengthened her and how, um, yeah, just that association with the choir has helped her get through some of these challenges and and also brought her some, some of the greatest joys as well. Yeah. And I guess the support of the family, I mean, it's got to be hard for some people, because this the choir would take you away from your family. It would take you away from your church congregation because on Sundays you might be out performing or perf- going to your performances and then traveling. What uh, what did you all learn about the choir that that stands out in your mind as a major as part of their key to success? I think they have a lot of you know they have a very rigorous schedule. Um, they're but the choir administration, you know, behind the scenes, they want, they're very respectful of people's family time. So they try to keep everything set. You know, they have rehearsals on Thursday, and then on Sunday they come in, rehearse, and then do the music and the spoken word broadcast. And then in addition to that, you have choir uh, concert tours and special mm-hmm. performances. But beyond that, they really try to guard their pe- the, um, all the choir members' time so that they can still have that time with their family. Yeah. And it's really a credit to their organization um, how organized they are, how great they are at running things um, so that everyone can still have their family life and their life outside of the choir. And living their principles of family kind of first. Um, one of the things I've noticed is the choir will also do like holiday uh, – um, holiday, con- uh, what do they call them? Concerts, mm-hmm. and they'll bring in these experts, or not? What do they call? Like yeah, uh, special like, guests, like yeah. special guests, but like high, high caliber yeah. guests. Yes, that will then perform with the choir, and it seems like every one of them comments about this concept that is is the message of the the movie, singing with angels. Mm-hmm. That they're blown away at the spirit they feel singing with this choir. Yeah. Brian, what what did what, where did the name singing with angels come from? And what is what's what's the purpose of that? As Brittany was interviewing different people and doing some research, one of the stories that came back was from one sister was that many times that they that they sing, they feel like they're not alone. They feel that there's you know um, if you want to call it choir members on the other side that 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 help and and make them sound even better than what they are. So we have a scene in the movie where a former choir member tells a story to our main character Aubrey, and. Uh, we just love the phrase singing with angels so much. We thought, you know, that really represents, mm. you know, what the choir and how yeah. so many so many of them feel. Do you feel like you're able to capture the it's it's hard, I'm assuming, to capture the spirit of a choir in uh in a in any, I guess, production alone. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you've been able to do that? I think so. It's been actually really fun. Um, we've done a couple of advanced screenings, and we had a screening last night for the choir, uh, for the choir members that were involved with the project. And it was fun to be able to talk with them afterwards yeah. and get their feedback and saying, wow, this just it really represents me. It represents my family life. It represents our service as we, as we sing in the choir. It represents kind of the overall experience. So, you know, it's nice to hear from them who know better than I do in terms of yeah. is it capturing that. And you got great feedback. They loved it. Yeah. Yes. Did they bring their families? Um, a couple of people did. Well, it's a the, huge choir, so yeah. you'd need a huge theater. Yeah, for the most part, they brought their spouses and came to enjoy it. And uh, most people are excited to actually take their families and go see it this weekend yeah. as it opens up and, and share it with others as well. So it's with its release, where can people find it? Where will they be able to get the movie? 
So this weekend, we're opening up in Utah and Idaho, um, and then uh, we're going to be slowly expanding across the country. So we're heading down to Arizona in a few weeks. We'll be going to Nevada and California and up the West Coast. And we have a lot of uh, interest on in the East Coast and in the South, so we'll be taking it there as well. So wow. it's, just, it's going to be a slow rollout, but we'll just kind of go from, from state to state wherever we feel there's enough interest. Are you going to live like in a motor home? What are you? <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> Is that it? You need to take some of the choir with you. Then you could perform everywhere you go. Yeah, Come on. Uh, they're already too busy with their other stuff. I know. So. <laughs> Choir. Well, it really sounds like a. It sounds like a big feat. It also sounds like kind of a dream come true. Is this one of your biggest productions you've put together? There's a lot of moving parts with this production, yeah. you know, I mean, with the choir being this large and just working with this, their schedules and having to come in to film with us on, a, on an additional night besides what, they all, what they're already doing was a little bit of a challenge, but uh, but it worked out great. Yeah. And in the end, Brittany, you you get to feel good about uh, something you've put out. I mean, it's got to be hard. Sometimes I'm thinking in the world of making movies that this is a pretty good feeling movie. It this is. This is a great topic. It is. And, you know, one thing we've heard from from those who have seen it, you know, our audiences so far is they've they've appreciated the the hope that they feel, that they walk away with, and that the, the light that there is with this movie. Because there are not many out there that, that leave you feeling that way. Um, there are some. But, uh, you know, we're, we're in a world that's increasingly dark. And, and uh, it's nice, I think, that here's something that's entertaining. It's a story. It's uh, some. It has characters that you can care about and that you get invested in, and you can kind of learn from, um, feel what they're feeling, and yeah. walk away with that with that hope. And one approach we took on this, we wanted to make sure that even though it deals with the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, it's not a religious movie, but instead it's a it's a movie with spiritual elements. Yeah, you know, we don't talk about any any specific religious doctrine, but instead we talk about the the, the overall the feelings that we have as we listen to music and well, how that makes a difference in our lives. And I can imagine in every church, in every faith that has a choir, they all get it. Yeah. You know what I mean? They get this. Mm -hmm. So we always see movies about athletes and, you know, those great teams that have done great things. Very rarely do you have a choir movie. Yeah. (laughs) So all the choir groupies of America – this is your movie. <laughs> yes, yes. Get out there. I, everybody's been in choir somewhere. Mm-hmm. So it is. I think you're, it's a powerful idea. You're talking to you're talking to not LDS, not Mormons, but you're talking to everybody that's Well, that was that fun to know. And when we went on, on tour with the choir last summer, it was fun to see up in New York that you know who their audience was that came there. It wasn't a specific, specific religious group. It was people that just love the music. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think one thing that's important to note about our movie is that even though the choir is so heavily involved in it, I don't want people to feel like it's just about the choir. Yeah. If you don't like the choir, you're not going to like the movie. And that's not the case. It seems it's, like it's about family. It's about a marriage. Yeah. I saw I mean, The choir is, is a big character in the movie, and it's kind of the backdrop for this. But it really is. It's a family movie. It's about the challenges and struggles that we face and how you overcome them and that the, the, the joy of triumph mm. that you have. And the, the choir acts as her support and providing that musical experience and that, that she feels. That's great. So. And brings the spirit. Exactly. Yeah. Powerful stuff. Uh, again, the movie is Singing with Angels. And uh, Brian Bruff is the producer and director. Brittany Wiscom. thanks for being with us. Thank and thanks you so much for having us. us. Thanks for being willing to put it out there like that. Uh, again, the release is this Friday, March 11th in uh, Utah and Idaho. You can look for it, I guess, just online and in the newspapers. Be looking for where it's being released. Yeah, if you visit our website at uh, singingwithangelsmovie.com, there's a location tab there, and we'll just be updating that as we go from place to place. It's awesome. Singing with Angels. Be looking for it. It'll be coming to some part of your uh, – in your area where you can uh, catch that as well. Again, not – an LDS movie, um, but about the choir. 
Awesome stuff, folks. We'll take a break, come back, visit our uh, good buddies from BYU Sports Nation, and do a little uh, extra bad boy news. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, as you know, on this show, we like to uh, we like to help everybody, not just the healthy, the wealthy, the wise, but also sometimes the bad boys. We want to help the criminal element. You know, if they're, if they're still going to be criminal element, we want them to be good at it. Uh, here's some advice for a Times Square Batman who has now uh, sued the city twice for unlawful arrest. He was cuffed for swiping $50 bill from a tourist. Costumed, a costumed Batman has reportedly sued the New York Police Department for false arrest. But you know what? An Irish tourist uh, said that he took 50 bucks from him. Jose Escalona Martinez, 42, was charged with petty larceny and criminal possession of stolen property for the Wednesday night theft on 45th Street and Broadway. The victim was a 63-year-old woman visiting New York from Ireland. She told police that he had taken a pic- she had take- taken a picture with Escalona Martinez about 8.30 p.m. on Wednesday as heavy rains pelted the city. The woman opened her wallet to give Escalona Martinez a tip, but the crook-caped crusader snatched a $50 bill and ran off. Come on, Batman! Can you imagine that? This poor... A uh, 63-year-old lady goes home to Ireland, and how was your trip? Well, Batman robbed me. <laughs> I'm sorry. Come on. You're a superhero, for heaven's sakes. Don't do that. That sounds like something the Hulk would do. Or SpongeBob. Or the singing cowboy. Come on! Not Batman! So... A little advice for the bad boy. Don't dress up like a superhero, a cape crusader, and then steal from the Irish. Not good. We'll take a break, come back, visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation, folks. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody. Little Bohemian Rhapsody. As we send it down to two of my favorite Bohemian Rhapsody-type friends. We're going to send it down to BYU Sports Nation, Jerem and Jason. Uh, Jason Shepard, Jerem Jordan. How are you, gentlemen? Oh, I sing along. My bad. (laughs) Dude, sounding good. (laughs) Hey, guys, how you doing? We're doing good. How are you this morning? You know what? I will give myself a seven on the scale of doing good. Doing goodness. Doing goodness. Going about doing good. Hey, by the way, today is just, if you're keeping score, day of awesomeness. Is it? Oh, well, that's Every day is the day today, of awesomeness. Which is why I'm thinking totally appropriate as I talk to the uh, J Squared crew. So are you doing the uh, Everything is Awesome song from the Lego movie? Ooh. 
um, boy, that would take forethought, wouldn't it? That would that would have probably been a better idea a couple hours ago, right? Yeah. <laughs> See, Jace, this is the difference with you and us. You um, you're a, you're just like a producer to the core. Okay. And you think of stuff like that. We just we just didn't think that through. We oh yeah, actually Terry made a great point. That was that's the, that's just too easy. Okay, all right. You don't want to go the obvious route, right? So we went to the next route, which was Bohemian Rhapsody, which is a really awesome song yes, from an awesome is. movie, by the way, too. Well, Wayne's well, World. Okay, I, I think don't the think song, of Wayne's World when I think of this. Song. I don't either. That's all I think of. Really? That's all <laughs> oh, I think of when I hear Bohemian Rhapsody. Wow, really? Yeah. It's also, if you were keeping score, um, International Bagpipe Day. Ooh! Oh, nice. Here's the question. Um, have you guys ever donned a kilt? No. No, but I wanted to. Not in public, no. Not in public. So when you get home, you, kilt. you slip into something more comfortable. A kilt. Fine. Well, but see, the problem with the kilt is for you to wear it properly, you have to wear it a certain way, and I'm not sure I'm okay with that. No, I agree. That's not on code appropriate. Let me just tell you, Jason. Not only are you not a, not not only are you not okay with that, none of us would be okay with that. <laughs> well, uh, then I, I think we're on the same page. See? Then we don't have to worry about it. So that's why, again, it is the day of awesomeness because none of us are donning a little uh, kilt. Little is the operative word. <laughs> hey, um, by the way, this seems more like the day of darkness, don't you think? Because wait, why? Well, because the I don't know if you heard about the game yesterday. Was it yesterday? The women's about the BYU basketball game. Women's basketball. Oh, women's. Yeah, that was Tuesday. That was Tuesday. What happened? I have I not talked to you since then. No. What happened? That honestly, we talked yesterday. We didn't talk about. No, we didn't talk, did we? Oh, we didn't talk yesterday. Yeah, you were we traveling. Like took, we took the day off. Yeah, I well, understand. we had a show. Yeah, you, you had yeah. to tape the show, and then you had yeah, to we get... ta- it was the rare tape the show situation. So, um, do you want to just kind of give us a rundown what happened to the the women? Uh, they uh, they blew it at the end. It was a that's, classic that's case of, of letting a team who you were kind of destroying early on yeah. creep its way back and stay in, gain confidence, and ultimately they, they ended up beating you. <clears throat> you got to watch out for the creep. I always do. <laughs> I always do. Yeah, that was, that was yeah, kind of a bummer. I mean, I left. When I left the building, they were up by 15. And I thought, okay, slam dunk. They did great. And then I find out they lost. Well, the good thing for for BYU women's basketball is they had such an amazing season. They're going to go to the NCAA tournament anyway. So the good thing is is it didn't cost them – a berth in the NCAA tournament. That's that's the positive. But obviously, yeah. you know, you feel for Coach Judkins and the players, and you know, it's definitely not the way they wanted to end it. But you know, on, on the looking at the silver lining, they're still going to have some basketball to play in the NCAA tournament. Mm. And that's the good news. That is the good news. Hey, um, are you guys doing your show thing today? We're going to do our show thing today, and we're going to have the head ball coach of the baseball team on. They're eleven and one. Beat Utah Valley. They have uh, another game tonight. You can listen to that on BYU Radio at 8 Eastern time against Niagara. Okay. He's going to join us. They're killing it right now. They're fantastic. Jason Jason is all over the baseball scene as well, so that's going to be fun to uh, chat about. Anson Winder will join us, talk about the basketball team. Is he embracing the NIT? What was it like to play in the NIT? Is BYU going to be motivated? Will they care? Yeah. Yeah. Questions. Plus spring football, a lot of position switches. We're going to talk about some of the main ones. And then what – Position switch you want for any player. You get a pick. Hmm. Any player, what position switch do you want? We'll uh, tell you ours as well. 
This is fun. Every you, it's fun every day, man. Yeah, well, it's all because you guys have awesomeness day every day. Every, every day, everything e- is every awesome. day. Everything is awesome. Um, we don't see on our show. We don't do awesome every day because that's just a lot. Yeah. To do. Yeah. You pace yourself. Yeah. It's a marathon. And we got three hours to. Fill. We just do one hundred so, meter sprints here. We got a one hour. Show. We really do. Every once in a while, though, we throw together a segment that is seriously awesome. And then uh, all the time, and it happens roughly at nine forty five a.m. Mountain. Every day. I was wondering if that's the direction he was going to go. <laughs> I was trying to help you there. Set that up. Hey, I got a question for you. Let's say you got a two hundred and fifty dollar ticket speeding. I've oh, had I've had I've a, had a, I've I've had had a, a four hundred. Okay, four hundred two. Yeah. Let me ask California? you. California? No, it's Eastern Oregon. Okay, mine was Which California. Is the worst place in the world. Oh wow! How much How much would you f- spend to fight a two hundred and fifty dollar ticket? I mean, uh, at what point zero. is it no longer worth fighting it? Well, I mean, now I mean, I'll fight it, but I'm not going to pay money to fight it. Well, you're smart. I'll then. fight it with my fist. <laughs> <laughs> I'll fight it out right there with the fight cop. The law. No, because see, I had a four hundred dollar ticket, and I I went through the process and and, and got it removed. Did, yeah, you. They, yeah. they sent me a check oh, back wow. for four hundred dollars. Did they really? They wow. did. Wow. What what process was that? I, I had to write out. I had to write out why I was contesting it, the situation behind it, why you were had speeding. To send it in. Exact. Well, I'd run. I'd run a uh, a red light or a yeah red light. But I remember the story. That's what you were sleeping. <laughs> I was not sleeping at the wheel, but I will tell you, it was the worst possible time to get a ticket because we were leaving San Diego to come home. <laughs> yeah, I got it within ten seconds of leaving the hotel we were staying at. So uh, not, I had the entire drive back to, to Utah think about that. to stew on that. Yeah. It was awful. Well, you you obviously put your case together on I your did. drive home, and and you got to you got to give them the money. And so luckily, I walked out to the mail one day. Looked in San Diego County, got my check for $400 back. No way. Got it back. Well, I've got a guy that you need to call because he had a $250 speeding ticket and he paid $100,000 in legal bills <laughs> to battle it over four years. Clearly, though, he has the money if he's doing that. Yeah, he's a pharmacist. It's a principal thing for him, right? <laughs> yeah, he's got to win it. But I mean, there's a point that the principal would be better, you know. You know, maybe fighting it another way. See, if I've got that much cash, I'm just going to go ahead and give him the 250 and call it a day. That's I'm right. I'm just going to go ahead and get a pinball machine and <laughs> play some snooker and some ping pong. What is whatever. snooker? Billiards. Okay. I didn't know what snooker was either. I was just going along with it. Yeah. Whenever he says snooker, all I can think of is this. No. Oh, BYU is going to win the national championship. Oh! <laughs> that's that's specifically about rugby or men's ball. Oh, that's a snicker. <laughs> I could go for a snicker right now. Oh, I love snickers. You're not yourself today. I'm a little off. <laughs> you need but to have a snicker. We're all awesome. You guys, I'm excited for your show. I'm glad you are. I mean, I really am. You're bringing we it are home. too. As always. Yeah. Spencer, obviously, sleeping this one off. Is that what he's doing? He's home taking a nap? Sure. Yeah. Who cares? We're here. Little Vegas malaise. <laughs> I understand. Here's the reasons. <laughs> we understand. We don't want to. I get asked. Do you know? Do you know the question I get asked the most? What? In this building? Where's Spencer? Are you serious? And I, I, I'm the guy that tries to teach in that moment, yeah. not just fend off the question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I go. I'll never know the answer to that question. That's you, a gr- just so you know. And so I, instead of 28 people asking now, it's down to 11. Do you nah. think that Spencer gets the reverse question of that? Where's Jerem? Yes. But here's the thing. We we work on different speeds, right? Yeah, yeah. So. 
that that's problematic when everyone thinks that you're always together, which we are together most of the time. We share an office. You know, people in my office thought you were the same guy. <laughs> and I'm trying to correct that, too. I'm wearing a bear shirt today. Spencer would never wear a bear and shirt. And it's here. Jerem's birthday, so we need oh to wish him. Oh, my gosh. Jerome? It is not. Someone put that on the whiteboard in our uh, <laughs> meeting room, and now everyone's like, happy birthday. I'm like, it's not my birthday. <laughs> but throughout the show, pr- that is going to be a running gag. That's great. That's a great gag. It's a good gag. prank, though. Happy birthday. <laughs> How old are you? Sorry, who are you talking to? Because it's not my birthday. Talking to you, Jerome. Oh. Okay. Maybe it's Jerome's birthday. It's Jerome's birthday. Hey, you guys got to go do your show. Go wax okay. up. Go get Goodbye. ready. Appreciate you. Keep, love you, bye. Love you, bye. Love you, bye. Good job. Good luck. Good luck. Man, they got a lot to do. And it's Jerome's birthday. JoJo, we call him. <laughs> That's cool. They're good people. Good people. Yeah, that man spent 100000 bucks fighting a $250 speeding ticket. There is a point where you just have got to let it go. The police allegedly used a radar detector to get him going 28 kilometers over the speed limit. But the, the pharmacist who secretly recorded the police officer who booked him is adamant that he was not speeding and is determined to prove authorities wrong. Well, I think like 20 grand into it, you start thinking, well, I've already spent 20 grand. I might as well finish well, yeah. it. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that goes on until you hit 100 grand. But apparently in Australia where this is taking place, it's gotten all the way to the high court. You can't buy your way out of a ticket. You can't use a hundred grand to fight your way out of it. That is super cool. Um, and if you are looking for a job, uh, there is a burping world record that you can now go break. I've probably broken that without even trying. Claimed by Darwin, not the Darwin, uh, a Darwin man with a fizzy drink fueled one hundred and ten point six decibel belch. Also, by the way, this story out of Australia, it's now um, challenging the Guinness World Record for the loudest burp after being egged on by his friends. That's a big, loud belch. Again, there's some things that aren't worth trying to beat, right? I mean, isn't there a point that your just sense of self would be like, "Eh, I don't want to go down in history as the guy that can belch loud. No, I want to be president of the United States. Well, to give perspective, our show sits around one decibel. Is it really? Does yeah. it really? Wow. That's a loud belt. hundred times louder than the show. Well, it depends on how they're listening to it, right? Yeah, probably. Because a lot of people, I'm sure, listen to our show turned all the way up. Because that's how a lot of people feel like it's the best. <laughs> Oh, Ben. Hey, as you know, we like to end the show talking about a hero story. So our hero of the day is going to be three New Jersey teenagers, three heroes. Gavin Costello, 15, Angelo Meltos, 18, and Kayla Wright. Early one school morning while uh, while driving the students, the bus driver suffered an apparent medical emergency and became unresponsive. The students started shouting that he had missed the turnoff to the school. The bus with 27 students on board continued down the road, swerving until it finally slowed at a red light. That's when Gavin Costello, 15, Angelo Meltos, and Kayla went into action. The three students were approached 
They approached the bus driver, quickly decided to take away his keys and open the door to let the students out. Gavin says he tried giving the driver directions, but uh, he wouldn't look up or talk. When the bus slowed at the red light in the middle of the highway, Gavin was able to put the bus in park. Angelo managed to get the driver's keys, and the students evacuated the bus and called 911. Police officers arrived on the scene, and the bus driver was taken to the hospital. All of the students were unharmed, and uh, the bus driver was in stable condition as he was transported from the scene. School officials say these are very focused students and can, with a can-do attitude, and they are certainly proud of them. So, kids, you too can be heroes. It's interesting how nervous they seem to be to take the keys away from the bus driver. Um, but they did it. Gavin Costello, Angelo Meltos, a- Angelo Meltos, and Kayla Wright. You are the heroes of the day on the Matt Townsend Show. And again, folks, it teaches us we're all heroes uh, to somebody in somebody's world. We can step up and be the person that, uh, that helps, that protects, that does the right thing. So I challenge all of us to get out there. And make it a great day for everybody. We'll be back again tomorrow. We can't do the show without you, so please join us again, 9 to noon Eastern Time. Or just look us up on YouTube, on iTunes, on TuneIn. Go find the Matt Townsend Show, or matttownsend.com. We're everywhere, folks. Look us up. We'll be here again tomorrow. Until tomorrow, folks, take care. Make it a great one.